Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. I'm always here. I'm joined by co-host Matt Feuerstein. He's also here, and this is a Boston episode, so I am joined by Joe Gagne, who is sometimes here. How are you doing, guys? I'm doing great. Uh, Still a little mad about the whole Thunderdome thing. (laughs) Yeah. Big implications. Uh, I can't believe you brought well, it up. You voluntarily just brought it up. You opened the floodgates, it's, Joe. It's, it's you know, it's still still a little steamed. But the uh, to be fair, the Voices of Wrestling podcast just kind of flat out called me ugly on theirs and said that's why I wasn't allowed in the Thunderdome. So you know, which I, I you know, guess, I guess you I guess you'd that. prefer Trevor's take. Uh, hmm, boy, what, a, what, Hans, what, a, what a handsome of but, evils, yeah. handsome but terribly inappropriate. I mean, mm. listen, so, listen, Jeff, you're you're the Jeffrey Tubin of through the years. I said it in <laughs> private. I'm going to say it in public. <laughs> so, well-respected journalist. Yes, I will. Uh, you have a brilliant. You, know, you have a brilliant. You have a brilliant legal mind. You're hated by O.J. Simpson. It's all falling into place. So for those who don't know what the hell we're talking about, uh, like weeks and weeks ago when the Thunderdome started, he's actually going to uh, say. He's actually going to say it out loud. Go ahead. No, I, I made a tweet, and there it was mostly just joking about the entire Thunderdome, but in that tweet was like a little inside joke about maybe Joe Gagne would be seen masturbating on the Thunderdome, which has no basis in reality, and maybe that tweet got retweeted by Matthew from Botchamania fame, who follows me, and maybe that tweet got seen by tens of thousands of people, and I, uh, I apologize, Joe, if I had known it would have spread that wide, I would have made it much meaner, but um, <laughs> I, I am sorry it happened. Let's, I am let, let's make it clear. Joe Gagne has never masturbated in his life. Never. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. Joe is hardcore religious. He has a wife and he has a kid. That means he's had sex one time. And that's all. That's the only time it's ever happened alone or with somebody else. He's That's all you need, man. <laughs> Keep it simple. At least, you know, he, uh, he, could, he could die saying that he did it. And that's really, isn't that all what we all want? We just want to be able to say we did it. Just, just once. I thought you were going to say we're just. We all want to die saying we did it. Like that's our death mm. confession. I had sex. I'm, I'm is not that a- how you? Is that how you went out? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Well, so, this show is a different level of show now. And um, I don't know if I sound weird or not, but uh, well, we keep the weirdness up. I told Matt this before the show, but. I can't hear out of my right ear. Uh, I don't know if I have an ear infection or just some kind of maybe pimple or cyst in my right ear canal. But for the last two days, I I would say my hearing in my right ear is maybe 10%. And so if I sound a little weird or occasionally I have to ask for someone to say something again, I don't think it should happen because I have a spare ear. But just in case, if anything sounds weird, just know there's an actual reason I literally can barely hear off my right ear right I th- now. I think Trevor just said that he has three ears. <laughs> um, no. I-, I was going to say before the show, could we have this in mono where Matt's coming out of my left ear and Joe's just coming out of my non-working right ear? Because I think that would have made the show perfect for me, but unfortunately oh, you're both in What meanness to a new level. Here, so since we're keeping it gross, I might as well tell you, Trevor um, – a few months ago, I had a situation where I couldn't really hear out of one of my ears, and I went to uh, an ear doctor, and he used like a pretty like high-powered spray to clean the wax out of my ear, and immediately it worked. So that's how disgusting my ears are. But maybe that's all you need, buddy. 
a high powered spray. It was water. I, I don't know if I've ever heard the word. Huh? Know. Does he have like a, a like a like one of those really? Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but you know what? I'm just going to move on. It was, like, on, a, it was know, like a pressurized stream of water, and like it drained <laughs> into like a thing that I had to hold under my ear, and that was gross. Wow. And so we're keeping it gross on through the years. For by the way, I consider this the season premiere of through the years because we finished uh, a calendar year. We um, we're, we're start we're, we're, we took a little break, and now we're coming back with um, some really disgusting stuff right off the top. And yeah, that's I mean, that's going to be our thing. That's going to be our thing this year. <laughs> All gross out material from here on out. Every, every episode will be a new incident of body horror. But um, again, the nice thing about through the years is whether your ear has some kind of cyst or infection or just a lot of wax in it, you can always use your other ear to listen to the great podcast on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we are still on. We also, as we mentioned recently, now have our own podcast feed, which is just us. Although, coming up, I would say probably in a couple weeks, we will you will see one episode of a podcast pop up in our feed because you've heard this probably if you listen to every episode, you know, we usually try and plug other podcasts and one podcast on the Pro Wrestling Only feed we've plugged in the past is uh, Shimmer Her Story, which is uh, Stephen and Stacy's great podcast where they review Shimmer show by show from the beginning and they are on the Pro Wrestling Only Network, but they had taken some time off, much to my frustration, but they are coming back. We have, as we understand, Stephen's going to do a post an episode they recorded a long time ago, but never put up a lost episode. And then it sounds like they're going to start doing regular episodes again. So I believe he said something time around November 6th, he's going to do, put up a brand new episode that freshly recorded. Yes. And, and, there, and there is an, and there is an episode that just posted on the pro wrestling only podcast network. Just, just uh, the day before we recorded this. So, yes, yeah, so um, probably early December, I mean, early November, you will see an uh, episode of Shimmer Herstory um, popping up in the Through the Years exclusive feed. It, do not worry. It's not – I know a lot of people are going to say, hey, we asked you for a feed that's just Through the Years, and now you make it, and now you're putting other podcasts. I'm just saying, this is not going to be – we're not starting our own podcast network. Lord knows we can barely handle doing our own show, but – you know, it, it's a great show. It kind of works as a great sister show to this show because Shimmer came up at around the same time. It's two people running through it, you know, from the start. It's, it's a really good show that we definitely endorse. And just to, you know, hopefully, I don't know how much reach we have, but um, they were interested in being having an episode pop up on the feed. So we're definitely going to have no problem with putting an episode up there. And I'm, ex- I'm excited to have it because I think it's I think it's one of the, the one of the best shows out there. I think it's a a great a great companion piece to this. Just as Shimmer is was a great companion to Ring of Honor. Yes. Yeah, so just one one episode will pop up. So if you see that, don't go. Oh, there's something wrong with my feed. No, you should listen to that show. Try it out. And of course, I was talking with Stephen the other day, and I was saying one of the great things about their podcast is. With our podcast, the question we get asked more often, I would say, than any other is, oh, this has got me wanting to rewatch or watch for the first time old Ring of Honor. You know, how can I legally watch these shows? And I always have to tell them, you kind of can't, because even though Ring of Honor has a streaming service, they don't have a lot of their shows up, old shows up. So we always have to say, you know, either go to eBay to find the DVDs or surf the Pirate Seas, find a torrent. And with Shimmer, you know, they have a streaming service for nine ninety nine. You can get every 
show they've done up to i don't know how re, how much of their recent stuff but i know like their first 60 something i think old shows are all are all there so you can literally have a legal affordable way if you want to do the classic listen to the podcast watch the episode they talk about you know get into that rhythm you don't have to go hunting forward or feel guilty that you're not supporting the company with with shimmer you know a superior legal podcast experience to our show (laughs) (laughs) so so with that uh we've talked enough about ear stuff we've talked enough about the rest uh guys we usually cover this the news that between the previous Ring of Honor show co- we covered and this show, and this time this is one of the longest news sections we've had. So we should get just get into it. Um, there's a story, Matt and Joe too, because I know you listen. But um, this story is a story I've been sitting on for episodes and episodes. I I have really wanted to talk about. Um, it, it kind of works as an epilogue to the Feinstein sc- scandal, saga, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it was not included in our mammoth uh, six-hour at our best slash Rob Feinstein scandal show because, quite frankly, my research I re- for that episode, I read like everything I could that came out in 2004. This happened in early 2005. But I feel like this is not the end of the saga, but it works great as like a little epilogue, like a what the fuck epilogue. And um, okay, I'm just going to read it. It's from This is from the, an early 2005 Observer. Dave Meltzer writes, Jeff Jarrett worked on a January 8th show in Wayne, New Jersey, and had his photo taken shaking hands with Rob Feinstein. That certainly made Jarrett look bad on the internet when the photo circulated, being that Jarrett, for a long time, banned his talent from working for Ring of Honor, claiming it was due to Feinstein being there. Feinstein has spoken with TNA about, when his non-compete is up in June, if they are ready to do house shows, about being TNA's local promoter for Philadelphia area shows shows after feinstein was gone from the company they still didn't allow christopher daniels to go back go back and have only okayed styles for one date this pretty well confirmed what we wrote from the start and was all a matter of jared and bob Ryder being mad because of how supportive styles and daniels were of ring of honor as a promotion while under contract to tna when i read matt when i read this i didn't remember this happened i thought what the fuck like like this is this happened just you no know, the the Feinstein scandal only cooled down months before this and it was you know and, and Jeff Jared was apparently and this was for the show Dave doesn't say this but I found out looking elsewhere it was an NWA cyberspace show that um Jarrett worked I guess Rob was at but they took a picture together they shook hands and according to Dave talked I, I don't think this ever came to fruition but about Rob being the promoter for TNA if they ever ran in Philadelphia. Um, what the fuck? This is like the beginning of like a, a trend that you hear a lot over the years. It's just like they took up, they were seen photographed with Rob Feinstein. Oh, now they were seen photographed with Rob Feinstein. And eventually it's just like, yeah, everyone's just working with him again. So it's like, um, you know, you know, just like people talk about it now when you talk about somebody quote unquote getting canceled, it's like, and then, the, and then some people come up and they're like, oh, it's not fair. We're ruining these guys' lives. And then it's like, well, actually, you know, like in a few months, they're just going to be treated like normal people again. And it's like, it's you could already see that as an example with uh, with him uh, way back when. It, it didn't take very long. Yeah, and I, I just think that I feel like um, when we covered that show, I mean, or at our best, when we covered that scandal on that show, um, 
I think I came to the conclusion, I think you did too, reading all the stuff and going through it, that, um, you know, TNA did have a reason to want to be distant from Ring of Honor, especially with the fact that there was the whole thing of Rob, they said Rob was gone, and then it turned out that Rob really wasn't gone, and then he was finally gone, a, you know, for real, a second time. But you could understand why a company wouldn't want to take risks being associated with a company that maybe was still associated with this guy. But I also think... You know, it's probably not untrue that jealousy and looking for an excuse to cut ties with Ring of Honor did also play a fat role in that. And then, you know, this definitely backs up that element because, again, if they were that worried in like mid 2004 about being associated with Rob Feinstein, Jeff Jarrett probably wouldn't be like hanging out with him in January 2005. Um, yeah, it, it's just. Just so weird, but moving on, because we got so much to get to. Uh, there was a Gabe radio interview he did at this time for Pro Wrestling Insider Radio on SportsTalkCleveland.com. He did an interview. Here's some brief, I, here's some notes. that got, I, I didn't get every note from this, but there are some notes I thought was interesting. Uh, Gabe said, he said, Gabe said 2004 was a comeback year for them, saying that they really had heavy odds against them and were, quote, dead in the water early in the year, which he says was one of the worst experiences of his life. He said that everyone made the comeback, though, presenting good wrestling, and they brought in some stars to help lend credibility to the product. Sapolsky said that it all paid off by the Christmas season as they had the best sales in company history during Christmas 2004. Sapolsky said that the promotion learned through their Christmas sales that the audience buys all of their DVDs, so they are going to pump up the number of shows they run this year. There are plans to add a date on uh, March 12th in the Northeast on top of their current schedule, which would make five shows in four weeks, which is a company record. Sapolsky says he plans to go into deeper character development and storylines while booking in 2005. When asked about the Ring of Honor title change from Samoa Joe to Austin Aries, Sapolsky said Aries is a fun talent to watch who is about to break through to the next level. He said that Aries has a lot of really varied offenses and styles so they can have some fresh matches with him and give him a chance to excel to the next level. Sapolsky says the proudest moment of the year was getting to the last match of Final Battle 2004 because for some time it looked like they wouldn't live through the year. He says their sales this past holiday season was a close second. Sapolsky said there are no plans for TV at all and it's not even under consideration. Sapolsky said that you need a network to get behind you with millions of dollars and they don't have that. Plus, the current business plan is working, so they don't want to screw with it. The plan is to keep the company as a continuing series on video with each show being a chapter in a larger storyline scheme. He said the goals for 2005 are to stay just stay in business and continue to put on a quality product. He said the goal is to continue giving fans something they can emotionally invest in. He also said the Samoa Joe versus Mick Foley storyline will feature Foley looking for a fight after Joe punched him at final battle, and it won't be a situation similar to the slow Randy Orton build. So that was the notes from the that interview. Um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we're just months removed from when the the Silken Feinstein whole battle over the company and both guys released numbers to the Observer saying that they were both six figures deep, you know, in debt supporting Ring of Honor. And now Gabe is saying, like, the company, it's working. The financial situation is working. We've just had record DVD sales. In fact, we're going to release more DVDs because our viewers buy every DVD. Like, Matt, do you have any thoughts about anything in the interview or in that in particular? Or Joe, too, like. 
he definitely covered a few things there, but I thought that was interesting saying, you know, we had our best DVD sales ever and that we taught us that our fans are buying every single DVD. Well, I, I am surprised by the buying every single DVD thing, but I mean, I guess I, when I started getting into it, I was doing that. And like, by the time I started doing it, there were more DVDs. So I think they, they did have their audience hooked. I mean, it's not surprising that they had their best sales though. I mean, they had by far the most buzz for the stuff that happened late in 2004. So I, I think that's, that's really not surprising to me at all. They, you know, obviously, you know, thanks to Samoa Joe and CM Punk, they had a very quick turnaround, at least in terms of like the perception of the company by the audience. Um, you know, I, I don't really, you know, I don't know what bar they were trying to reach. Like, I don't know what the, you know, we, we don't really actually know what the DVD sales ever actually were, right? Like those, those numbers yeah. are unable, are not, they don't exist, right? Like you can't find them anywhere, publicly anyway, right? All we have is anecdotes. Like we were, it was in the newsletters, I believe people have said in the company that like Joe versus Punk 2 was their best selling DVD up to that point. And that, you know, later when Joe versus Kobashi comes out in 2005, that becomes the new best selling DVD. And I think like Shane Hagedorn has anecdotally mentioned about how like the Jimmy Yang straight shooting shoot interview, they had piles of it like lying around because it didn't sell. But like, we know what the best selling ones are, but we don't actually know like how many they sold. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We basically just have like this sold well. Maybe this didn't sell as well, and we don't have yeah any idea what that means. Sold well could be like you know like twelve hundred. You know, like I, I mean, I assume they had DVDs that sold a lot more than that, but I don't actually know. You know, Joe, were you were you in every Ring of Honor? I mean, you were going to obviously at this point every Boston show. Were you buying every DVD, or were you kind of pick and choosing? I was. I ended up with every DVD. Some I prioritized, and like Punk Joe too, you'd buy right away. Other somewhat lesser shows, you would wait for a sale, but you would end up with them eventually. Around this year, with amping up more shows, I think I did fall behind a little bit. There'll be some shows coming up I didn't. Um, I didn't end up purchasing, but by and large, around this time, yes, I was getting every show. And they had, uh, and they I, had, and they had sales on the website all the time. And if you went to the yeah. live shows, by at least by 2006, the whole buy three get one free thing was pretty much standard at the live shows, which was which was useful. You could get you know four DVDs at a live show, um, you know, catch up that way. Um, but yeah, like like you know, f- I don't remember what all the different sales were. T- I don't know if it was like fifteen percent off, twenty percent off, buy three get one free. You know, they were very 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 frequent sales, but it was still expensive to buy all those DVDs once they were doing like the you know like two double shots a month by the way, the way they were by like two thousand and six. Yeah, for those who don't work, didn't come up at the time or don't remember, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, we, I think the DVDs were twenty dollars a shot. Yes, and the, VH- and and the VHS sales- was like fifteen. Yeah, yeah, and then they would have sales like Matt said. It described a lot of the sales. I remember sometimes like sales where they'd be fifteen dollars, maybe occasionally a ten dollar, but usually the ten dollars would be like once a, for a selection of DVDs that got um like an older DVDs. Like I think when I was looking at the old Wayback Machine website stuff for this show, they had a sale where like a lot of the 2002 releases were 10 bucks. Right. That was how that was helpful for me in like catching up on the older stuff when I started watching. Yeah. And for me, I was a person where I was definitely buying them in order, but I couldn't always like, like Joe, I couldn't always keep up with the releases as they would, you know, 2005 is going to be the year up to this point where they run the most shows 
in their point and they're up to this point in history. And like, there'd be times where I'd be like, man, I really want to see this show, but I've got to watch this. I've got to save up and buy this B show first because I've got to watch them in order. And like, I did not pick and choose probably to my enjoyment, like against my, I probably would have enjoyed it even more if I had picked and choose and then filled in the gaps like Joe did. But I was such a weird OCD stickler from watching them in order. I would just be like, well, you know, oh, I gotta watch Ring of Honor Gold before I watch Punk Joe too. So. Which we, which we literally have a podcast. What we do, where we watch just all the shows yeah. in order, <laughs> no matter what. So I'm just reliving my my, my mistake. But uh, yeah, if you want to listen to a podcast that actually picks and chooses and has more fun with it, well, no, we have a lot of fun. But if you want to do a show that picks and chooses, that would be an honorable mention, which where they jump around and and throughout the years, where the show that's called Through the Years doesn't go through the years. Well, it does in a different way. We go through the years very, 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 very slowly. <laughs> so, um, some more. And by the way, by the way, that's going to be that's going to be our slogan now. Our new slogan, Trevor. Um, through the years, relive your past mistakes. <laughs> uh, through the years is my entire life, then. But um, moving on, we have a a big change to the rules, Matt. This is very important. This was in the Ring of Honor Newswire from December 28th, and this will come into play. I think we can talk about it a little later when we get into the show. But Ring of Honor officials have, have decided to drop the Contenders Ring. The Contenders Ring was similar to the top five rankings and number one Contenders Trophy in that it was a good idea on paper, but didn't work for a promotion with an average of two shows a month. It was not it was a good idea. It was temple. not a good idea on paper. Let's put it. Let's just be clear about it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the website continues. Ring of Honor will consider bringing these concepts back one day if the promotion is in a position to really make the most out of the concepts. The challengers for all titles will not. Have to now have to petition ROH officials for a shot at the belts. Ring of Honor officials will then look at recent one loss records, strength of opposition, and respect shown towards the code of honor to decide who will get the title shots. This will also create some new booking scenarios that will become clear in the upcoming months and lead to more intense in ring competition. So, yeah, one theme throughout Ring of Honor history up to this point that we've covered is Gabe has tried a variety of different, like, official number one contender rankings, and none of them have lasted. I, I think the top five rankings would last the longest, and then there was the, there you had the number one contenders trophy, which was the idea of having a literal trophy that would be defended, and then, I guess, up for grabs once a guy cashed it in to become – to have a world title shot, and then we had the recent contenders ring, which was literally just – kind of the top five rankings without it having to be five people and not without it having to be ranked. Just here's some people that are in consideration for a title shot. And now it's just gotten rid of it all entirely. And yeah, it, it wasn't working just because, I mean, it was fairly honest of them. I mean, even though Matt, I, like you said, you probably wasn't even a great idea on paper, but it was honest on them on the newswire to just say, look, the idea wasn't working. <laughs> So we're not doing it anymore. Like there was yeah. no excuse. Like we, you know, they transitioned to three different number one contenders things. Always saying, "Well, we're trying things in a new way." This time they just said, "Look, it wasn't working." I feel like the the number one contenders trophy was fine. I don't get why they didn't stick with that. Unless they were like, "Oh man!" But then how do we make who, who gets the shot at the number one contenders trophy? <laughs> and then they could have made a number two contenders trophy. That would have been fun. <laughs> And also, the number one contenders trophy, every time the guy uses it, you have to have a, like, a brand new match for the vacant trophy. And the idea was it was almost going to be like a second title where someone defended it. But the problem is usually people that become number one contender, like, 
get their title shot on the next show. I mean, sometimes not, but usually so. So it's like a lot of times a guy wouldn't even have the opportunity to defend the number one contender's trophy like a title. So, yeah, they, they're just the kind that did not run enough shows to do that. And quite frankly, like, guys, like, Joe, you are probably the biggest, like, wide-rangiest wrestling nerd of us. You watch a lot of stuff, like, and I've talked about a lot of stuff on Joe vs. the World, your classic wrestling podcast. And I mean that in the, in the, in the, like, the quality sense. It's a classic wrestling podcast. Not that you, just that you talked about old stuff, but, um, like, do you remember any promotion that had a ranking system that actually worked? Because I feel like WCW tried it, but even then, I don't feel like that was a huge draw. Um, uh, AEW, people have gotten on them for not really sticking to it, like, oh, you know, you don't stick to it closely enough. It doesn't mean enough. Like, I don't, I can't remember a promotion off the top of my head that has really had a, a ranking system for world title shots where people go, wow, that was like a great, I was on the edge of my seat who got third versus who got fourth. Uh, that's some pretty mad disrespect to the WCW Top 10 sponsored by TurboGrafx-16. But, uh, <laughs> no, you 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 are correct. It's just uh, rankings always just kind of end up being silly when you try to put mathematical thought into who should get the next booking title shot. It, it, it never really works out, as we're somewhat saying with AEW. Some disagree, but it's, it hasn't exactly worked gangbusters to me. I think it, it's for- one of those ideas. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's one of those ideas that looks great on paper, but in practice, I think it's like a little too rigid for a lot of promotions, especially when so many things like injuries or booking changes on the fly, like it, it, you know, especially with, when you do rankings really rigid, if you make the rankings so that they're really important, you kind of have to see when title shots are coming, like in a real rigid way, where like, occasionally in wrestling, I, I believe that most times title shots, it should be the guy who's won a lot recently and sat near the top of the card, but occasionally you do want that kind of wild card title challenger, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they got rid of the top five rankings right before this show, because this show is headlined by Colt Cabana challenging for the Ring of Honor world title, and if you used any kind of ranking system, there's no way, in no way does it make sense for Colt Cabana in early 2005 to get a title shot, because he was gone for months, and then he came back for one show and wrestled in a tag match that his team did win, and now he's getting a world title shot. Like, that can only work you know, in, if you get rid of any kind of ranking system, it, it doesn't work if there's a top five because, you know, or a contenders ring because in the way he's been booked recently, Colt wouldn't deserve to be in any kind of ranking system. I um I also think the ranking system is like trying to be like a little bit more like a real sport, like boxing or I guess now MMA. But my question, because I don't really follow boxing and MMA that closely, do they even stick very rigidly to like a real like ranking system based on wins and losses, or do they sometimes like kind of, um, you know, kind of mess around with that formula too to make like money matches? Oh, they. I mean, at least with MMA, they definitely like, you know, they 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 jigger with that in terms of both. I I would say like booking guys that aren't like the number one versus the champ. All some you know obviously sometimes they do that, but sometimes if it's a money match they don't. Or sometimes a guy like might be ranked higher than you think he should be based on like past success. You know like how do you rank a guy that's a was a champion in one division but he moves down? Is he like instantly a top contender in a new division he hasn't fought in? You know all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah, it's it just too rigid in terms of you're just trying to book for money but um also also i was was gonna say well before we move on um i think actually joe i think you can agree with me people our age or or you know like in that like 
10-year window. Like, our favorite ranking systems were the ones that appeared in PWI every month, right? Like, like those those lists of all the different, like, indies and, like, WWF and WCW and, and, and Global and stuff. Um, those were fun. And, the, and I might have mentioned this before, but, like, I remember um, when I first started reading PWI in, like, 1991, I was, like, seven, and... I remember, like, like Mr. Perfect was the Intercontinental Champion, and they would always list, like, as, like, the number two ranked person for WWF as Kurt Hennig, and I didn't know that was Mr. Perfect's name, so I just assumed <laughs> that there was this great WWF wrestler named Kurt Hennig that, like, just, like, he was wrestling on shows that I must have not been watching, like, like, he was just this guy, it's like, who, I can't, what, I need to see this guy, I, I just, he doesn't show up, he's never on, like, the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania, but he must be on all these other shows. <laughs> that's so wonderfully innocent yeah uh, i remember reading the pwa rankings where they would have like the separate rankings for each promotion and then the top 10 which would be the 10 around the world and like the uswa at the time i was a huge pwi reader was always getting its only top 10 and so like a lot of times they'd be like oh you know like the spell binder or whatever is like number eight in the world apparently because he's number one in USWA or, you know, like, you know, Jerry Lawler's opponent of the month that won the title from him. You know, he's, he, he's got a rank in the top 10 somewhere. So I was like, man, I'm missing out, not watching USWA. And I was in a way, but maybe not for the way I thought. Yes. I always liked when they uh, pulled out the top 10 for this, for the most obscure feds, they would just toss one in there. Like some fed in <laughs> Texas, that's probably drawing like 10 people and <laughs> the stinger number one and the car bomber number two. And it's like, hmm, really missing out here. I, I, I always <laughs> felt like I was really missing out. And like, I guess that it's fun to feel that way. It's fun to feel like there's a big world out there that you can explore. Yeah, it's it's fun to know to, to have knowledge of like there's a world that I can't immediately access in ten minutes on the internet. Right, right? and you get to like ima- you get to, to imagine, imagine it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was like what the whole with the um the 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 last battle of Atlanta or whatever it was, and like everyone yeah. dreamed about it for like thirty years until it was finally put on the WWE Network, like that sort of thing. Yeah, and then mo- the general consensus I believe on that was like, oh, it's not that good. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like it, it, so. Which again, that probably had a you know, uh, a real hard, um, not to get too off topic, but like a real hard mountain to climb there because it had literally decades of hype and imagination built around it that it had to live up to. Which I actually haven't got around to watch it, but from what I've heard from people I would trust, it didn't live up to that uh, right. hype. But, I did. I did watch it, but like. I don't know if I'm the right person to judge that kind of match. <laughs> yeah. I just so. want to add when uh, I first got online in the fall of 95, you know, I was reading about all these ECW reports, but there, there weren't video, there certainly weren't video clips. There weren't even pictures. So I would just be reading all these text uh, show reports. And it was just like really drove my match. Like, what does the Sandman look like? Like, you don't really have any kind of yeah. uh, frame of reference. It's just kind of, you know, the thing everyone can't really understand today because everything is available right away if you're like oh, i wonder what so-and-so fed is like there's probably at least free matches on youtube that's why i feel like stanley weston the publisher of the pwi magazine should be in the wrestling observer hall of fame like mike today and uh melter talked about recently on a podcast and they at least today was kind of against it but i feel like for generations of us, like like I completely relate to you, Joe, where like my whole experience for years of ECW was just from the magazines. Like I had no access to it. I, you know, cat you know, for a long time being a little Canadian kid, I didn't get anything but WWF. So even like 
Ray Mysterio Jr. or Cactus Jack. Like I had them built up in my minds for like years before I saw them just from reading those magazines. Like those magazines were basically your wrestling internet before the internet. Um, so moving on ring of honor, they were doing some expansions in early 2005. This is kind of crazy. Um, PW insider wrote the promotion has opened Japanese and Spanish language versions of their website in hopes of raising their international level of awareness, as well as selling more merchandise overseas. Mike Johnson would continue ring of honor had staffers in Puerto Rico last weekend, handing out flyers at WWE new year's revolution pay-per-view promoting their new Spanish language website. And then going on, Sid, I never know how to pronounce his last name. He was an employee of Ring of Honor, E-I-C-K, Sid Eck, who handles the bookkeeping and ticket sales for Ring of Honor, is flying to Japan for meetings with prospective outlets to carry Ring of Honor merchandise overseas. Since he's going to be in Tokyo, he'll also be handing out flyers in front of the Tokyo Dome before New Japan's big show there on January 4th. Ring of Honor opened up a Japanese-language website last week in preparation for the meeting. So... Yeah, I kind of forgot about this too, but Ring of Honor, you know, in, in early 2005, it really seems like between this and, you know, Gabe's interview, he's like, we're going to run more shows because we think everyone sells, you know, is buying all the DVDs. Like, they were really, after a, after a period in mid-2004 where you thought, like, ooh, even they kind of seemed like, are we going to survive? They're definitely, this is one of the more, I would say, bullish times of the Gabe era of Ring of Honor and where they're just shooting their shot in a lot of places, I would say. Um, yeah, they're 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 riding the Joe Punk momentum, and of course, they had, I think Foley ha- help is helping a lot too. Definitely. And uh, moving on, PW. In, I'm trying so much to you. PW Insider wrote the promotion Ring of Honor, that being Ring of Honor has expressed interest in bringing back Sanjay Dutt now that his TNA deal has expired, but I haven't heard of any interest in using the Amazing Red. The promotion doesn't have much interest in booking TNA talent due to their own deep roster, feeling that they would rather invest in booking performers who aren't under deals there. AJ Styles' appearance on February 25th in Dayton, Ohio is still designed as a one-night-only appearance. So, yeah, that... Um, obviously the H.A. Styles thing would not be a one-night-only ap- appearance, but um, definitely inter- – I don't think Sanjay Dutt comes back anytime soon, does he? I, I no. So. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he, show, he shows up at least once in 2006, but I don't think he shows up in 2005 off the top of my head. Uh, continuing on, Xavier, the PW, the pro wrestling torch wrote around this time, Xavier will return to ring of honor around springtime. He has been out of action since March with a shoulder injury, which I found this story weird reading it now in hindsight, knowing that one Xavier doesn't return to ring of honor, at least as a regular. And two, according to the PW insider at this time, and I looked it up, Loki and Xavier teamed last weekend for chaotic wrestling in Massachusetts. So... He was out initially because of the shoulder injury, but he was back wrestling and even had the torch saying he's going to be back in a few months and he doesn't come back. So I don't know what happened there. Obviously, again, you know, rest in peace, Xavier. He died a few months ago. We talked about that at the time, but I, I'm not sure why he never came back into the run. He, he was back wrestling at this point, but um, meanwhile, someone else that had been largely phased out although i think we'd see it we'll see him again but largely phased out of ring of honor matt striker um he was in the uh what dave Meltzer wrote in the observer does he described it as the nearly forgotten white boy gold medal challenge um where he lost matt striker was on a uh, wwe tv losing to um 
Uh, Kurt Angle in 57 seconds, bleeding even when Kurt Angle hit him with the microphone. Uh, Dave wrote that he, Matt Stryker was built from New Orleans, which from the crowd response, nobody even in New Orleans believed. So Matt Stryker, I feel bad for Matt Stryker. I feel like every Matt Stryker story recently is not good for Matt Stryker. Um, Pro Wrestling Torch wrote around this time that Mick Foley said on an interview with Between the Ropes Radio that he let Vince McMahon know if his plans to work for Ring of Honor. I mean, let let him know of his plans to work for Ring of Honor. During the interview, Foley said McMahon asked him to evaluate the talent while he worked their shows. Mick says he feels like he had he Mick says he had a blast at the Ring of Honor events because it feels like a big party with fans traveling sometimes hundreds of miles to attend. Foley said when he first saw a picture of Samoa Joe on Ring of Honor tape packaging, he couldn't believe he was the champion. Then he saw him wrestle and realized he was the top act. He said the key for Joe to get over in WWE would be for, would be for him to be introduced in a particular way, not put on velocity for a year before moving to Raw. He said some training vignettes might be a workable approach. He also said he told Joe to tone down his style because he couldn't survive working that style every night in WWE. Um, guys, like, um, how do I get into this? Um, isn't it weird that Mick Foley, like, judged Samoa Joe on his body? Like, I guess a lot of people did, but it is kind of weird that you know, Samoa, I mean, you would think that the guy that should be most understanding that, like, you can't judge a book by its cover would be Mick Foley. And, but he, uh, apparently even he looked at Samoa Joe on the cover of Ring of Honor DVD and is like, what the fuck? This, this guy's the champ. But I do think, again, Samoa Joe's a guy a lot of people at this time felt that way. And he was one of those guys where if you watched one match, I think you understood Samoa Joe. But there were people that just saw the, heard the name and saw the, the figure and went, oh. Indie guy it's in the really, worst way. It's really weird to me because, like, I never, like, I was, I just never thought of like, about, like, like that. You know, like, it never would occur to me to like to like when I first saw Samoa Joe. It didn't, it didn't go come into my head for a second. Like, oh come on, this guy, like, it, like that didn't even occur to me. He seemed like a tough guy. You know, like that's that was that was fine. And you know, it's it's just I think when you're in the business, you're more likely to be kind of brainwashed by that mentality than if you're just a fan. I really. I really, I mean, I know there are fans like that that are like, oh, what that guy, he's fat, you know, like, but I don't know. I, it just, it seems like much more of a inside the business way to think than it does a fan perspective. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a sign of the times. Like, I don't want to be too hard on people that express those opinions back then because I do think, People a lot a lot more people had that kind of mindset in 15, in the in the, bus- in the business though right yes yes and one more story from the torch the torch wrote there is no sign <clears throat> of Samoa Joe or CM Punk getting WWE offers at this time they don't fit the body type WWE is looking for now so going to your point <laughs> one WWE insider says about Samoa Joe WWE officials look at him and some don't think he can get over with his look. There are forces within WWE speaking out against such a narrow approach to hiring at this time. So, um, obviously, the Punk thing, people might read that story and go, man, the, the torch is, you know, out to lunch because Punk gets signed, you know, he signs a deal half a year later. But we're not very far from the time when CM Punk starts noticeably putting on muscle and switching from the basketball shorts to trunks. Because I think, in part, the word got to him from WWE that, that was one of the things that was probably making them hesitant to sign him. This was would you say this was the closest Samoa Joe ever got during that era, like to getting into WWE? 
Like, is that was this like when the talk was at its like most intense? Because obviously he would go to TNA and have a run, or, you know, a very long and successful run there. You know, six months later, but like it seemed like very possible at this point that he would go, and you know. Sometimes you got to wonder, like, how would it have worked out for him? You know, I, I, obviously it worked out for Punk, and you know, probably Paul Heyman when he showed up would have taken Joe under his wing too. But uh, you know, I, it's it's hard to know. Like, would they have destroyed him? Would they have made him Umaga? And would that have been like okay, or would that have also been a waste of him? I I don't know. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where um, it it, it it's. Uh, it's weird where, sorry, my mind just went blank there. Um, Joe, what do you think? I, my mind went, I just got distracted for a second. Um, poor, you know, it's just so funny <laughs> that, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, with Foley and, you know, Joe did eventually make it to WWE. I just remember the old mankind line, the interview with Jim Ross. Why didn't you take me when I was good? Not to oh. say that Smoke Joe's not, uh. But by the time he got there, he was too broken down to really live up to any kind of potential. Yeah, I think we all we all think he could have the heights he could have reached. As of this yeah. time, uh, who I just kind of doubt it would have worked out. But I would have doubted things would have worked out for CM Punk, and he did a thousand times better than I ever anticipated. So, so who knows? But for a guy like Joe, I, I don't know. I think uh, I think it, it might have gone sour pretty quick. Yeah, and I was. Thanks for filling in, Josh. Sorry to put you on the spot like that, but um, Matt, uh, I was just going to say I just remembered. Um, yeah, like going to your point, talk about it, asking, do you think this was the uh, time that Joe was closest to being signed by WWE, at least in terms of being looked at? I think I would definitely agree because, like, we know from just the new sections of recent shows we've done, like. Foley has claimed that, you know, he was talking, trying to get Punk and Joe into Ring of Honor, and Steamboat said, like, on his way out that uh, he was telling the torture people, like, you know, he was going to talk to anyone that, you know, asked or that he could recommend those two guys. Like, they definitely had some friends in, in WWE that were um, trying to push them, but obviously there's a limit to what those guys' influence were in Ring of especially Ricky Steamboat, who was a brand new hire for them, but... Yeah, this was probably the closest until he got signed, you would think, especially because of the hype from the five-star match with Punk and all that. But So that is most of the news. But I saved the best or worst for last because there was a letter to the Observer around this time that is one of the most negative letters I've read from the Observer. I will just read it. It is, it is feisty, I will say. Uh, well, more than feisty. So... Dave must have edited this guy. I guess it, this email, this letter kind of starts in what feels like the middle, but there was no part before this. But I'll just begin. This letter writer writes, On to the awards issue. I am by no means a Triple H fan, but for him or for anyone in spots 4 through 10 to be ranked below Samoa Joe is a total outrage. We've seen this before, Dave, with the rabid ECW fans back in the mid-90s. Their product, their guys, were always superior, even when their mainstays were blowing spots left and right. Much like the ECW fans, the Ring of Honor fans have definitely drank the Kool-Aid. Remember when every ECW fan believed the Eliminators were the greatest tag team ever? Or when Taz was this tough guy who the fans believed could choke out Dan Severn? Look what happened when those two examples were taken out of the ECW environment. I, ha I have to say it, but they were total flops. 
Same with the public enemy. In the context of an indie promotion, because that is all Ring of Honor is, a struggling indie, Samoa Joe is good. If you rank the most outstanding indie wrestlers of the year, he would probably rank right up there. But ask him to carry Raw every week for a year in solid matches without stiffing someone and see what would happen. Okay, on to my, perhaps my biggest beefs with the awards. Booker of the Year going to Gabe Sapolsky? I had this debate after the Sabu show a few weeks ago, and everyone at the table, including one of the unheralded bookers of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, agreed with me. A good booker is one who can, here's the cliche, make chicken salad out of chicken shit. He is also one who can get the casual fan to have an interest in the product. Hard making chicken salad out of chicken shit when you're using the best indie talent available. Let's see Gabe book a show with an aging vet who doesn't want to bump. Four guys straight out of wrestling school, none of which have gear. Three guys that at least have gear but have only wrestled a handful of matches, and some more vets who refuse to do the job when asked. If you can book through that and still present a good show, then you are a qualified booker. Get those fans to come back again, and you are an awesome booker. Based on all the evidence, two men who would be at the top, who should be at the top of the list for best booker are Paul Lee and Jim Cornette. Every time Paul Lee has the helm of SmackDown, the numbers go up. For Jim Cornette, the guy's throwing curveballs every week, but still makes his TV entertaining, and it makes sense. He worked around the Bashams, Eugene, and Mark Magnus. He took Johnny Nitro, who everyone expected to be gone at this point, and made him someone that people want to watch. But again, you have all the Ring of Honor fans who have drank the Kool-Aid. I just feel bad for the Mark who runs the promotion of Florida that is conned, that was conned into having Sapolsky book for him. I guess keeping the title on a guy for over a year qualifies you as best booker. But then again, this isn't the WWE title or Triple Crown. It's an independent wrestling title for crying out loud. Also, for Ring of Honor to be second in promotion of the year, that is embarrassing. Run more than two shows a month and consistently hit attendance in the four figures, and then come back and tell me you're the promotion of the year. Until then, draw your your couple hundred and put your two shows on a month. I'll give Samoa Joe and CM Punk their due for having the strong matches, but put them in an environment where they are working four nights a week, crisscrossing the country, and let's see if they hold up. Signed, Rob Feinstein. No, I'm um, signed, <laughs> name withheld, by request. Um, yeah, that's all I have to well, say. Yeah, I'll just say this. There's a lot of factual things I could disagree with in that email. But I'll just say this email is horrible because this person refutes their own argument within the ma- the letter because their first point is Ring of Honor isn't a good company because all these guys are just much like ECW. They're they're just mirages. You know, they're, they're talented. They're not actually good anywhere outside of the Ring of Honor environment. Their fans believe they're good because they've dr- drank the Kool-Aid. And then his next point is Gabe Sapolsky isn't a good booker because he's got nothing but great talent to work with. So, like, you can't have it both ways. You can't say the talent is all just, like, secretly not good and then say, well, Gabe Sapolsky is a uh, bad booker because he's not never been challenged because it's so easy to book a promotion with talent that good. Like... His two arguments don't even go together. So I just uh, – that was a pretty lengthy, very angry email. And again, a lot of people at this time had this mindset that like people like Samoa Joe or CM Punk couldn't possibly handle the rigors of a WWE schedule and they couldn't possibly know how to like modulate their style at all. Like somehow Samoa Joe couldn't possibly wrestle on Raw and have a good match. Like he would just be like, oh my god, I have to like kick – Triple H slightly less hard in the back. I don't know what to do. And that was the mindset a bunch of people had at that time. But we can finally get to the show, which is we're going to cover this week or this episode that Joe Gagne was at, the very first Ring of Honor show of 2005. It all begins. Ironically and named that, considering how late we're starting it in the, uh, in the yes, episode. I, 
Uh, I apologize. It all begins, <laughs> took place January 15th, 2005 at the National Guard Armory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, from a report crowd of 650 fans. Mike Johnson wrote that Ring of Honor returns tomorrow night to Cambridge, Massachusetts at the National Guard Armory. After bouncing around buildings, the current plan is to remain with this venue, which is a nice, intimate place with good sightlines. The advanced sales for the show are the strongest in company history in the market, with the exception of the Jushin Liger event last November. Uh, Sean Radican, who was there, said the building was packed, and it was definitely a different type of crowd. Uh, Joe, being there live, do you remember, like, it definitely felt like from the result the reactions in the main event segment that there was a lot of fans there to see Mick Foley like did it feel like a different kind of crowd or do you even remember or no watching it does it does feel feel different like Mick Foley drew a lot of a lot of people in which is great but it kind of felt like they weren't there to see the normal ring of honor show yeah and I guess one more thing, actually, we have to get to before we get to the show proper, although this is about the show, is there were more injuries affecting the show, guys, than pretty much any show we've covered to this point. Let me just go through them all as quickly as possible. PW Insider writes, Valet Becky Bayless was involved in a bad auto accident on New Year's Eve, so her plans to study overseas are out the window. Bay- Bayless suffered internal bruising, a sprained ankle, nerve damage to her neck, and also injured her rotator cuff. Our best to her for a speedy recovery. Ring of Honor is covering for her injury by stating Bayless's neck injury was caused, was happened in their storylines, which was originally going to be the storyline exit for her heading into Europe, because that's where she was going to stay abroad. Bayless was originally booked for this weekend to explain her absence, but her injuries will prevent her from making the date. The original plan for Becky Bayless was for her to be put through a table at the Cambridge, Massachusetts event to explain her departure to go study abroad, but that's out the window due to her being in the auto accident. Uh, next up. BJ Whitmer will be undergoing elbow surgery shortly on a nagging elbow injury. On a nagging injury, expected to return onto the ring on the February nineteenth Ring of Honor third anniversary event. Whitmer's partner Danny Moff won't be booked on the January fifteenth event, partially because the two are between programs with the conclusion of their feud with the Carnage Crew, and partially because Ring of Honor has started rotating some of their mid card performers in order to keep them fresh. Which is also why Colt Cabana wasn't used at Final Battle two thousand four. Matt, I kind of said that we were going to have this on the on the last show, but I didn't realize this was in my sh- notes for the next show. But Matt, does that make sense to you that Colt Cabana was kept off Final Battle to keep him fresh? That doesn't make sense for two reasons. One, Colt Cabana had just returned for only one show. He returned at All-Star Extravaganza 2 after being gone for months. And two, he was about to start a world title program with the champion. So... This idea of we got to keep Colt Cabana fresh by not putting him on final battle makes zero sense to me. Um, um, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I don't know. I, 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 it definitely doesn't make sense, but I, I don't know why they would make it up. Like that's the that's the thing that doesn't make sense to me either. Like why would they lie? So I don't know. Could you think of it like why they would say that if it wasn't true? Like, but you, I mean, I totally agree that it doesn't make sense. I, I I can see them rotating guys, but I just don't get like like if anything, I thought Colt Cabana's absence was uh, was a negative on Final Battle because you know knowing that this show he gets a world title shot, he could, really could have used like a tune up match like to help give him another reason for getting a title shot behind just having a beef with Austin Aries. Like he could have used like a spotlight singles win, and instead he's not even on the show. It just the idea that you needed to keep him fresh when he was only on one show in months is just 
yeah, I, I, I don't get that. But yeah, um, to say the idea of like rotating guys, keep them fresh by keeping them off one show, like the same thing with Nigel McGuinness, right? Like that, that, that it doesn't make sense. With Nigel, I'm wondering if maybe he was just like out of the country for the holidays. Like I, I don't know because he's obviously his, his, I'm sure his parents are not from you know America, so that's the only thing I could think of. And Jack Jack Evans, I could maybe see that for because he's off a couple shows in a row, but the other ones I don't know. And I guess Shelley too. I don't know. Well, we'll get to Jack Evans in just a second, but um, Izzy and Dixie, another one from PW Insider, who are brothers, although they are feuding in the current Special K breakup storyline, were taken off this weekend's Cambridge, Massachusetts event due to a death in the family. Our condolences to them, so that's another two absences. Then um, Ring of Honor is playing up a storyline that Prince Nana has sent Ring of Honor champion John Walters to Ghana, West Africa, so he doesn't have to compete in his hometown of Massachusetts this weekend. In reality, Walters is booked for Jim Kettner's ECWA promotion in Delaware. That's a pretty clever cover story, though, writes Mike Johnson. Yeah, in fact, he was working ECWA, I think, on this night, defending the ECWA world title. So he was working ECWA over a ring of honor, but he was the champion he had had been for quite a while, I think, like half a year at this point. But that that was interesting. And then finally, the biggest injury, and this is why Jack Evans wasn't on the show. I believe this is also from PW Insider. Ring of Honor regular Jack Evans suffered a concussion last night working for Pro Wrestling War in Santa Ana, California during a main event match against Super Dragon. Working under a hood in his debut as Blitzkrieg 2, he had been given the persona in the ceremony by former WCW star Blitzkrieg last month, Evans went for a 630 splash on Super Dragon but came down on his head. Evans later believed that the Blitzkrieg outfit may have hindered his mobility. Dragon immediately pinned Evans, and the promotion quickly ended the show, requesting that fans leave the venue. An ambulance and several fire trucks respond to the scene immediately. Evans was held overnight for observation at a local hospital and released this morning. Evans was advised not to compete tonight for Ring of Honor event, Ring of Honor's event in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and will not be flying into the show. Ring of Honor officials agreed that it was best that he not perform, and are currently working on how his injury would play into their event. Um, yeah, like this, Jack Evans was a big fan of Blitzkrieg, who was a flyer in WCW in the late nineties, who was, came onto the scene and only had a very short time before he got out of wrestling. And he actually got his gimmick, but I believe he, I don't even know if he wrestled another match as Blitzkrieg two after this, because yeah, he, he wrestled in the mask and hurt himself immediately. And that sounds like a really scary injury. Luckily he was okay to have fire trucks and ambulances and have to stay overnight at the hospital. Like, I don't think I've ever seen, I'm sure he probably has other times too, but I've never seen Jack Evans screw up the 630 where he lands on his head and... Oh, I have. Okay. Or maybe it was, maybe, no, maybe it was a a double, um, a double moonsault that that that, that happened with. I was at a live show where that happened. So, um... That, so that, that that's a ton of injuries and absences, but we can finally get to the show. We open, unlike most Ring of Honor shows, in the ring, no backstage segment. Bobby Cruz introduces the new Ring of Honor world champion, Austin Aries, who makes an entrance to his new personal genius, personal Jesus theme, not personal genius. <laughs> uh, that'd be great if the genius came out to a cover of that. Um, he's dressed up, at least by indie standards, I wrote. with a, He's got a dress shirt on, he's got slacks, he's got shades. Uh, Aries' first words are to tell a fan to shut their mouth. 
Arison says it's great to be champ. He says he knows that people have been saying and writing about what people have been saying and writing about him, that he'll never be able to follow in Samoa Joe's footsteps. He'll never be able to surpass his title reign. But Ari says he's going to make his own footsteps. He's going to defend the title more than Joe did. He's going to be, go internationally more often than Joe did. He's going to have better matches than Joe. And when all is said and done, he's going to have the greatest title run in Ring of Honor history. Uh, Aries 10 turns his attention to his first challenger, Colt Cabana, who he describes as the love child of Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire. Which I thought was funny because usually when you say like the love child, it's like, oh, this person, this person who would never get together. And it's just like the love child of Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire is like, well, they were kind of linked together. Um, Aries says Colt didn't earn his title shot. He lucked into it because of the bad blood between them. Aries then stumbles on his words here and gets a couple cat calls from the audience for doing so. Aries says he's going to leave Colt a bloody broken mess. Bobby Cruz then tells Austin, using just Austin, not calling him Austin Aries, that Ring of Honor has done away with the contender's ring, and that now when someone wants a title shot, they have to petition Ring of Honor officials. Aries tells Cruz to only address him as champ or Mr. Aries. He starts to continue, but Al Shelley shows up at ringside and takes the mic. Shelley says Aries made the biggest mistake of his career. Shelley says if it wasn't for him removing obstacles for Aries, Aries would have been stuck in mid-card purgatory for a year, just like Shelley himself was. Shelley says he's petitioning to be Aries' first title challenger, and then Shelley continues talking, but Roderick Strong attacks him from behind. He and Aries beat him down until Colt makes the save, even no-selling like an attack from Aries. He tears open Aries' shirt to chop him and hits him with a scary-looking backdrop where Aries' legs clip the ropes. Uh, I believe if you look at Joe Gagne's recent uh, Twitter, he actually posted a gif of it. It is a pretty scary thing. Luckily, he didn't break his goddamn neck falling backwards. Um Aries is strong retreat to the outside, and Colt gets on the mic to say he didn't forget what Aries did to him last time in Boston. Shelley tries to grab the mic from Colt, but he just tells him to hold the phone. Colt says he's going to win the title here in Boston tonight. Then Shelley takes the mic, still on one knee from the beatdown, and says, I just want to say, and Colt interrupts to say, will you, with, will you marry me? Which gets genuine laughs from the crowd. Shelley says Colt isn't his type. Alex says, with all the sins generation Nexus committed against the Second City Saints, Colt is the bigger man, and he thanks him for helping. He extends his hand, but Colt tells him to take his hand away, saying he didn't come out here to be Shelley's friend. Colt says he remembers what Shelley did to him and says he just came out here to go after Ares in the title. Colt leaves, and Shelley says he can't say he blames uh, Colt for acting that way. Shelley then says he has a match tonight, and he calls out Spanky to wrestle. Spanky comes out to no music, but before we get to the match... um. Joe, definitely a different kind of segment for Ring of Honor. They usually don't do like big opening segments like this is almost like kind of a raw style segment where you get a promo to start that leads to a confrontation, which kind of sets up the match for later in the night. This was also, I guess, the start of them kind of doing this angle, which I, I, I liked in some ways of Alex Shelley being kind of like this guy without a country where he's trying to be a good guy now, but the faces have kind of remembered that he's an asshole. They're not so quick to forgive him. Uh, what did you think about this? Yeah, um, it was weird to have a show that both kicked off and ended with a talking segment like, you know, ROH's war. But given the seismic shift that happened at Final Battle, I think it's certainly understandable to kind of do a reset and, you know, let fans know what's happening now. And, you know, <laughs> they're still getting uh, Aries entrances uh, down because it, it was so smoky during this and the, the main event. There's this big fog hanging over the ring. And I thought, you know, Aries, Aries was fine. For whatever reason, Capetta was holding the mic really low. Like, Aries had to, like, crouch down almost to talk into it. And he's not <laughs> under the giant. That, so was the thing, that was, like, the one of the biggest things that I noticed. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bobby Cruz. Yeah, he, <laughs> yes. 
what are you doing? And, um, you know, I thought Colt making the save was fine. It was a little, he started to, he hulked up a bit during, uh, during uh, his comeback. And yeah, he gave Aries the huge back body drop. Cause it looked like Aries was going to land on his ass. He rotated, but then his legs went in between the top and middle ropes and kind of clipped and like landed on the back of his head. That was like really scary, but I do appreciate, um, you know, Colt wasn't just best friends with, uh, Shelly now that he turned face I you know he's still mad at what happened which you know normal human beings would do so like I said a, um, I guess a, a fairly productive opening segment Matt any thoughts yeah I mean it, well first of all you you had mentioned on the last show like was that Aries face turn and like I think pretty clearly like we could tell no definitely not right he was more heelish yeah. than ever here right um, but yeah I mean th- there's definitely some kinks that they have to work out in the presentation of Aries um you know, like, like the the thing with him, I don't actually necessarily blame Cruz for the microphone thing. I actually like, I noticed it a lot. Like he was like bending over the whole time. It's like Aries, just take the mic like yourself and like talk into it. You know, <laughs> like it's just like you know. But of course, you know things you, you have to work on and figure out. That's you know he was not super experienced in that yet, so he had to become more experienced. And obviously, he would get a lot better at doing promos. Um, but this was probably his best promo so far in ROH, you know, given that he didn't have a lot of good ones before that. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, it was just it was a uh, it was a pretty uh, it was a pretty by the book segment to set up a match later in the night uh, because I guess they had to remind the the Boston crowd that there's an issue with Aries and Cabana because it had been so long since that match that they had before, you know, where, where Cabana hurt his arm, you know, quote unquote, before he went to, to England. But it was fine. Um, I like that they, uh, I like that they transitioned right to the Shelly stuff. I, I think that was good. And I think it's good that they really highlight that right off the bat, um, just to show that this generation next thing is going to be a main thing in ROH now. Like it's the, it's the top angle, I guess, at least it's positioned as such, um, that and the Joe Foley thing, obviously. Um, but its position is stuff as such right away, so that that you know gives them something to go with. I, I really enjoy the the she- the way they're booking Shelley at least at first in this angle. I don't think it necessarily goes everywhere that I'd have liked it to go, but the idea that he's he's trying to make friends now and everyone is like, no, <laughs> you know we don't we don't want to be your friend. Um, it it is funny that Colt said you want to marry me when Shelley got on his knees. Uh, I I just wish that. That Shelley had said yes. <laughs> you you ship out Shelley and Colt Cabana. Yes. I didn't think yes, I did sure. before I watched this, but now I definitely do. I mean, really, who wouldn't? <laughs> That'd be a cute couple. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the opening match. Another cute potential cute couple. This would be Spanky defeating Alex Shelley via pinfall in 1446 after he hits the slice bread number two. Um, Joe, this is the opening. I did. Joe, did you think it was like? I honestly thought it was weird that. Spanky did not come out to music because I guess maybe they're trying to sell the impromptu nature of Shelly saying, you know, Spanky, how about we do the match right now? Because, you know, Gabe's even trying to sell on commentary like this was scheduled for much later in the show. But it did seem kind of to take the wind out of the sails a bit, like to have Spanky just like walk down the aisleway and have zero music. And but um, I guess what do you think about that? And then what do you think about the other minor thing that happened, which was the 15 minute match they wrestled? Yeah, the no music was <laughs> he just walked out just quiet like, you know, he's a 1983 heel on a WWF house show or something like that. 
And uh, I, I mean, you could say it's impromptu, but it's not nuclear launch codes. I think you can hit play yeah. on a CD. Like, <laughs> it shouldn't take that long. Like, give me 30 seconds, you know, come up with it. As far as the match itself, I think if you think about a match between these two, the ceiling of it would be absolutely tremendous. And the floor would be, well, I guess, obviously a disappointment. And I put this one kind of in the middle, which makes it, you know, a, a good a good match. Not not super or anything. I thought they did some good work. Uh, there was a lot of leg work that kind of got just kind of forgotten about later in the match. But I thought the closing stretch, there were a lot of near falls that were really good. And uh, Spanky gets the win with kind of an impromptu slice bread. So Shelly's still kind of a man without a country. I kind of I kind of appreciate that. I thought it was a good, solid opener, but but nothing more. I, I thought this was good, but yeah, a little disappointed given that I think they could have had an even better match. But um, this is one of those matches where I felt like the most exciting parts were the least interesting parts, if that makes sense, in the sense that the end part was the most exciting where they're just doing, you know, moves and near big move, bigger moves and near falls and action, action, action. But I thought the most interesting part of the match was the first, like, I would say third of the match or three to five minutes is them doing like really good chain wrestling with lots of counters. And I just thought they had a real chemistry there. And then they start working on, you know, Spanky starts working on Shelly's leg and he really goes at it like on the outside, just going after it with a little bit of like, I don't know if I would go as far as to say viciousness, but you know, he's, he's going after it. I think, Ooh, this could be interesting. And like you said, both the chain wrestling and the, um, the legwork, they kind of just, that that's just stuff to fill time for the final. And then the final stretch is just your typical indie big move, kick out, big move, kick out, you know, reversal, kick out. And, you know, it, it's entertaining, but I actually thought the maybe because I see so many matches like that and the bar for those kinds of matches gets raised so much. Like I was more interested in like, I would have liked to see them do more stuff just grappling and, and doing reversals. I like the opening mats. I really like that. And I, my other problem was I did feel like, um, Spanky does the slice bread, like number two, out of nowhere earlier in the match. Like he just, he's on defense. All of a sudden he just does a chin breaker, immediately hits the slice spread number two for a near fall. And then he does it again, not that much later to win the match where this time he walks up the ropes after he reverses something. I did feel like those felt like a little, um, just kind of too spontaneous, like in a bad way. Like it just felt like, just like they weren't really built up to like, just, okay, I'm going to do it for a near fall. Okay it's the finish, even though that is his finisher. But overall, it was still a good match. I thought the action was good. I thought Spanky was really trying hard here. I mean, he does, I think, a frog splash and a big flying elbow where he jumps like so, gets such good push on his legs, he almost overshoots Alex Shelley on the flying elbow. You don't see that too often. But overall, good, not great. Um, Matt, what do you think? Um, I would also classify the match as good and not great. But I would disagree in terms of like uh, with you in terms of like how it matched expectations. I don't, I don't think I would have expected this match to be any better than it was. I think it was perfect for the position it was in, which was an opener. I think it did a great job of being a really hot opener. I think it's one of the better openers uh, that ROH has had. You know, not their best, but high up there. And I think it might have been the best match on the show. Um, I'd have to wow. think more about it. Mm. Yeah, I um. I thought it was a really exciting match. You know, I think there was indie-rific aspects to it, so to speak, in terms of, like, ignoring the limb work, going a bit overboard with the uh, with the uh, near falls. Um, the, the one where um, 
the one where Spanky hits a superplex and then he goes back to the top and hits a flying elbow for another two count after so many, the crowd actually booed and it was like, all right, that might have been one kick out too many. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, I thought it was it was good for the position it was in. Um, you know, it's it's an opener, so it was doing opener ish things, but that's fine. Um, I, I I didn't I didn't mind it. Like so, I would say you know the good match th- three three and a half stars. I would I would probably put it at. Um, really good. Um, some other stuff that I noticed as far as commentary hmm. was um, Nolte saying that the Austin Aries era has beginned. I he really does say that. Like is is begin to word, and I just don't know. No, it's begun, right? I yes, mean- yes, it would be begun. So I uh, so that was weird. Um, it's all. I also enjoyed that when Spanky locked on the figure four, Gabe called it old school, and I'm like. I mean, I guess it is, but you know, it feels like it's more of a, a timeless move than an old school move. That's that's a minor thing, but I I, I don't know. Um, the other thing was, uh, you know, they're they're they positioned Shelley as as behaving like a babyface pretty clearly. He shook hands at the beginning of the match. You know, he he wrestled with fire. I think that they you know they really want to push that Shelley is trying hard to be a good guy. And I guess the question then is, is is it sincere or not? And I, and I appreciate that. I thought that that's. I think that's a cool gimmick that they go with because obviously it doesn't make sense for him to suddenly be a good person, right? But he's wrestling as though he is like a you know a, a guy with fire and like you know the crowd took to him a lot faster than the than the storyline wrestlers did. They were all about him right here, so I think that was good too. And did oh, you also? Um, no, I just I, before I forget, there was a there's one spot like you know they're mat wrestling and one guy in the crowd just yells boring and the crowd kind of boos him it's not super noticeable but cave on commentary just goes off he's like yeah our fans don't show up to be wise asses and get themselves over and like this is what a great roh crowd's all about and it's like i don't know geez the guy was the guy just thought it was boring he didn't think it was he wasn't like pro apartheid or anything or <laughs> super offensive it was just like he was still boring so i don't know maybe Gabe was just in a mood about crowds that day. Joe, that was, Joe, Joe, was it you? And are you saying was, that? Is, are you saying that because you're embarrassed <laughs> about being pro apartheid back in 2005? No, that was not me. Okay, I had my pro apartheid sign. I held up. I don't think it made camera. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah, I was about. Oh, sorry, I was. I was about to say. Um, yeah, what you said, Joe. I was wondering again. That, that's another reason why it makes me wonder. If there, this crowd was more casual than some Ring of Honor crowds, maybe more people going to see Foley. Because I can't remember the last time we've we've heard a bore, even one person say boring audibly during a Ring of Honor match. Maybe there might have been someone during the first or second Joe Punk match because I think Punk actually like calls the guy out or something. He's like, "There's the door, asshole." I think that Punk Joe too, but. Like it's very rare in Ring of Honor actually for someone to say boring, and to the point where, uh, to your point, Joe, the fact that Gabe goes off on commentaries like that, this wise ass, you know, this is why Ring of Honor fans are great because they tell that guy to shut up, you know, like. Um, I, yeah, and also, 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 I missed an opportunity to make a joke that the Boston fans would have loved the guy who was pro apartheid. So, who <laughs> <laughs> this man? Uh, <laughs> Now Joe's the new co-host. I've turned it on you, Matt. No, um, uh, so after the match, once Spanky leaves, Shelley gets a big round of applause from the crowd as he limps to the back. So the crowd is at least forgiven out, Shelley, if not the wrestlers. Next, um, we go backstage. Steve Carino is, is with his students, uh, 
He's wondering where CM Punk is. Then Punk and Colt finally come in. I wrote in my notes, by the way, this is all happening in what appears to be a very small cramped kitchen area. I see a sink. Um, Punk hugs Carino. Steve wants a coin toss to see who gets to go out first tonight in their, in their tag match. Punk wins the toss. All during this, we get talk about how it's time to shoot a promo. They're, they're treating this like Ring of Honor often does, where like, oh, you're seeing this stuff before and after the promo. They're never aware of it. Um, Punk tells Carino it's going to be about their, – their promo is going to be about the Carnage Crew and the Rottweilers, or as Carino says first, Carnage Crew and the Black Guys, before Punk corrects him. Uh, Carino actually says, quote, it's time to get serious. And then Gabe from behind the camera starts to count down to begin their actual promo. So they're doing very work shooty kind of like, oh, like, you know, the promo's the fake part and this other part you're seeing is the real part. And then we get the actual promo. Punk says tonight he and Carino are are winning the Ring of Honor tag titles. He says no matter what you see on the outside, on the inside, he and Carino are good friends who look out for each other. Punk says they work out together, but then he corrects himself and says, well, I work out and Carino sometimes also at the gym. Uh, Punk says, like Jimmy Bauer says, they are very dangerous. And then Punk screams that into Carino's ear. Steve yells, that's his good ear. He tells Punk, right ear good, left ear bad. You know, acknowledging, you know, that he's gone deaf in one ear, kind of like me, except the Carino guy, you know, definite ear from homicide hitting it. I got, um, deaf in one ear for who knows what reason. Uh, Carino switches sides with Punk and also says they're going to win tonight. Uh, Gabe says, all right, I guess that's a take. We then follow Punk and Carino down the hall as they leave Carino, and Punk jokes to Colt about Carino wanting a coin toss and crying about his ear again, saying it happened like a year ago. So I... I, I, I'm torn because I do think the punk Carino kind of friend, frenemy chemistry is, is fun and it's, and it's funny and sometimes even charming. But I do think it's kind of here sometimes boring on that like work shoot stuff of like, oh, this isn't the promo, but this is the promo. And it's also, it's also kind of my enjoyment of promos like this are also tempered by the fact that we know it's building to a, a match that doesn't happen because they're trying to build this this kind of simmering punk Carino thing. And we know that Carino as often as the case with Carino kind of abruptly leaves ring of honor on this run. And it just, it's a loose thread that never gets tied up. I don't think, but uh, Matt, what'd you think about this? Yeah. I, I am at the point where I don't really enjoy the punk Carino dynamic, honestly. Like, um, I, um, I just think it's like they're trying to be too cheeky, but like the jokes don't like go anywhere. You know, like like what are they even trying to say? Is it all inside jokes? I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know what they're totally getting at a lot of the time. And you know, and like you said, the work shoot stuff, Carino being like, "Let's act serious." Like that's not Punk's instinct. You know, like I don't think that's Punk doing that. That's Carino and Punk's being like, "All right, yeah. well, Carino is the the senior member, and we'll we'll do what he wants." And I would rather just punk be punk. Like, I think punk's funnier when he's doing punk comedy and not Carino comedy. And I just thought the segment was awkward. And I also, I mean, we'll get to it later, I also think their matches are kind of awkward. So uh, I'm not not a huge fan of this. Joe, what are your thoughts on this, this wacky um, segment? I, I, I kind of like the wacky combo, but maybe because I'm just parachuting in to watch these Boston shows. I'm not watching every... You're not in the shit like Matt and I. Nope, you're way in the weeds, so maybe it's uh, <laughs> it's wearing you down. 
Cut to Alice in Danger somewhere else backstage with some kind of machine loudly humming off camera. Uh, Danger says 2005 is a new year for the Prophecy, and she's going to bring in new members and bring new life to this cause. Danger says the Prophecy will never die, and 2005 is going to rock. So just a whole new storyline for Alice in Danger, which is a whole old storyline. She's been trying to bring back the Prophecy for like a year now. So that continues. And that brings us to our second match on the show. Azriel defeated Deranged by disqualification in 5 minutes 15 seconds when Cheech and Cloudy attacked him after he hit an electric chair driver on Deranged. So yes, this is the first match where where um, Angel Dust is now billed as Azriel. Part of the uh, the idea is, oh, he's uh, taking things seriously now. You know, it's another sign. He's got the, the recent show he got, like, official gear. Or it might have been this show. I forget which show was his first show with real gear. But now... Now he's Asriel, although Gabe keeps making the mistake of calling him Angel Dust during this match, having to correct himself. Uh, Matt, we, we basically almost saw these guys have a singles match at Final Battle. It was a mixed tag, but they wrestled a lot of it against each other. Um, what did you think about this one? Only five minutes long. Um, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't It was as good as some of the other matches that they've had. Um, I, I, I don't think the distractions outside really really added to the match uh, so it was just it was just so so i mean there were some good spots at least i mean they always have good spots i thought asriel looked better than he has at other points you know he has he has like a, a really on point drop kick he seemed pretty motivated uh, he was aggressive you know i always love watching deranged you know the the, the flip over pancaking hip toss thingy that he does i always enjoy that um i I, I just thought all the interference and stuff by Special K was kind of annoying. Um, I don't know. I I, I, um, I also um, I didn't realize that Becky had been in that accident. So when Gabe said that her career might be over, I, I thought she was just being written off. So I mean, I'm obviously that's sad that she had that accident, but I'm I'm glad they didn't just get rid of her on purpose because I thought she, you know she added a lot. Remember, I was mentioning in the old shows, like in the previous shows, rather, she was sort of the heart of the the baby face side of the team, right? Cause like Dixie and angel does really weren't showing any personality. Angel, uh, Azriel is a little bit better with that here as, uh, as Azriel, but still, I still think I still miss Becky here. I don't know. Um, so anyway, yeah, so, so match, um, but some good spots. Yeah. I, I thought this was fine. Um, I actually thought it had potential to be better. Like, I think these guys have good chemistry. I, you know, I think they work well together, and they, much like their last match, they broke out some really cool, uh, big, deadly double stomps. But I, I really would have liked these guys to see to have a ten minute match without interference, because you know, and even the cheating, like there was some very boilerplate cheating, which I'm fine with. But I felt like in this match, that's already so short. I kind of would have. I really just want to see a 10-minute match from these guys. I want to see what they can do with kind of nothing holding them back. And they've had two matches now where they haven't really had the chance to go 10 minutes with nothing else to worry about. But, you know, um, Deranged here does some very standard cheating, like choking behind the ref, or all the Special K does, choking behind the ref's back, you know, all that stuff, eye pokes. And um, and then you got a rare, like, Ring of Honor DQ run-in, where it li- and it was a very unimaginative one. That's one of the problems with Ring of Honor. It's not that DQs or cheating are bad, but so often Ring of Honor, it's so unimaginative. And it was that case here where as soon as um as Asriel hits the electric chair driver for the big near fall, that's the, the, the Cheech and Cloudy run-in. And, like, there's no... 
it's just very abrupt and very obvious and and it, it feels jarring here in a way it wouldn't maybe in WWE because you see it so little in Ring of Honor like practically never and um yeah, on commentary, Gabe says Becky's out of commission from the Lacey DDT at Final Battle and will probably never be back because of a neck injury suffered from it. But like we mentioned in the notes, she was actually going to be written out permanently on this show by going through a table. Um, he says, uh, Gabe also said that Dixie had gone to rehab and Izzy, on the other hand, is too strung out to be here tonight. So that was his way of explaining why they were all there. Uh, Nolte, Mark Nolte on commentary really bizarre line where he says this match is like going to a special Olympics and a brawl breaking out. Uh, Mark Nolte, everybody. Um, uh, in a moment, there was also a moment in the match where Asriel outwitted deranged and Gabe says it's not t- tough to outwit someone when they're on E and Nolte says it's only a little tougher than outwitting Missy Hyatt. It's like, geez, Mark Nolte got, had some anger issues, but uh, uh, Joe, what did you think about the match? Um, I thought it was okay for a, a- five-minute match with a bad ending. It kills me how Gabe's like, thank God Angel just dropped that ridiculous name. Now he's Azrael. And I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that's probably a lateral move at best there, with his, especially with his little wrist guards he had on. That just looked kind of silly. Yeah, I made no of the two terrible Nulty lines. Like, who goes after Missy Hyatt? She's she's wonderful. Uh, Eric, she's a, does, uh, that, didn't, doesn't Eric Bischoff go after Missy Hyatt? Well, there you go. I yeah. think that answers <laughs> that question. There was one weird spot late in the match, which arranged like, I don't know if he went for a dive. He just kind of did like a 619 feint back in the ring. And then like nothing happened after that. I don't know if someone was out of position for a dive or what happened. But yeah, um, yeah. Okay, match, bad ending. We can all move on. The only other th- one thing I want to say about commentary is at one point during this match, Gabe promotes the upcoming Scramble Cage match that's happening on the next show. But he says Scramble Cage Melee is a match so dangerous you'll probably never see one in Ring of Honor again. The difference between a Scramble Cage and a Scramble Cage Melee is just in one match, both matches are cages with platforms in the corner. One match you eliminate guys by jumping off and landing on people below. The other match you can do that, but that's not how you eliminate people. That's the only difference. So I love that in the same match he was like, Scramble Cage is coming up, but Scramble Cage melee. Well, that's so dangerous. We can't do that one. Like, they're practically the same match. Like, the very first Scramble Cage, people jumped off the top of the cage. I'm going to bet the next Scramble Cage, people are jumping off the top of the cage. Um... So unless they make a rule, no, just kidding. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that would be hilarious if there was a scramble cage melee where you couldn't jump off the platform. <laughs> it is literally just a cage match with platforms you can't use. They're just there to but, tempt you. <laughs> <laughs> can you resist? <laughs> um, so after the match, the the uh, the attack on Azrael continues. That started with the the run in that caused caused the DQ. Lacey even slaps Azrael in the face. Dunn and Marcos then come out to to their theme and they fight Special K off. Dunn grabs Lacey and she fires off a surprisingly hard forearm to him. It looked pretty good, but he just grabs her again. He and Marcos put Lacey over their knees lift up her skirt to expose her underwear and spank her. Nulty says they almost had their first Janet Jackson moment in 2005, which, boy, that takes me back. And uh, Lacey escapes to the outside and screams at Dun and Marco as Dunn and Marco celebrate with Azriel. So this is kind of continuing that the special K feud now has this weird, like, Dunn and Marcos element to it. And also a, a second straight show where Dunn and Marcos had to save Azriel, but this time it's more... Um, 
forgivable because literally everyone else in Special K on the face side was either injured or apparently going to a funeral. So you can understand why but, no but, one else could help them out. But this one had one of the funniest commentary lines in a long time. Uh, when Gabe saw Dunn teasing, uh, punching Lacey, and Gabe goes, are they going to hit a woman? And he was like <laughs> shocked at this concept. I am still convinced in moments like this that Gabe had a time machine and he's listened to the – we know he listened to the show. But he's going back in time just to fuck with us and like <laughs> altering time. Like that, that has to be a fucking rib on you and I, Matt. That, that has to be. Um, so uh, we got to Homicide backstage with Julia Smokes. Homicide says tonight is the first of his best of five match series with Brian Danielson. And since every match has a different stip, it's a tap out match tonight. Homicide says people think he's just a brawler, but tonight he's going to stretch Danielson like he's Dory Funk Jr. Uh, Homicide says that they broke Danielson's arm once and they're going to do it again tonight in this filth that people call Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Gabe does a cut, so technically the promo is supposed to be over. Also, also Homicide says custody of the Rottweilers, but I'm pretty sure he meant courtesy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh so we get a cut but the camera keeps rolling allison danger walks in and she's bragging b- both julia smokes and homicide up to their faces and she's asking them you know please join the new prophecy smokes isn't into it but danger says they're stable mates with the havana hit bull uh, havana pit bulls and they're facing uh carino tonight her and she says carino's my brother Tonight, and uh, I have the inside scoop on him. Smokes and Homicide just laugh at this. Danger then points out that on a future show, the Pitbulls are facing Moff and Whitmer and that she owns their contracts. She doesn't explain how that's a benefit, what that possibly means. She just, you know, mentions that. Homicide and Smokes, though, now seem interested, and they tell the cameraman to clear out so that they can talk. So That, w- that would be an interesting trio if they went with that. Definitely. Even just smokes and danger on the outside together would be interesting. And then this is something that didn't make um, DVD, but according to the live reports from PW Insider, Ring of Honor filmed a vignette over the weekend where Alice and Danger went out into the crowd at the Cambridge, Massachusetts event trying to sign fans up for the prophecy since she's so far gone that she doesn't accept that it's dead and buried. Danger has opened up an official website at www.prettypieceofflesh.com. Uh, I tried to look up this site. I was a little scared. It, it does not exist anymore. Prettypieceofflesh.com. Um, hmm. We, <laughs> <laughs> someone take it. It's, it's, that, that hot URL is available. Um, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> Five Star Match Games, new home at www.prettypieceofflesh.com. Um, we go back to the ring where Roderick Strong comes out and grabs the mic. The crowd launches into a big you tapped out chat because Roderick Strong was also much like Matt Stryker did a, a Kurt Angle challenge, I guess, at, around this time. Roddy replies with, and I got paid for it. So shut up, which that gets a round of applause. But I always think that's the cringiest line when wrestlers at this time, like indie wrestlers would get, you know, jeered by the fans for um, doing these little segments on WWE TV and they always like, yeah, like I think John Walters later does a segment like this or before. And he says something like, yeah, and I got paid $500 for one minute's work. And it's like, I always think that's such like a cringe line. Like I got money. Like, like I agree, but it's, it just never comes off great to me. Yeah. But anyway, uh, is that, was that Roderick Strong's first ever line on a microphone in ROH? Uh, it might've been, I'm, I'm not sure on, on, on like at, an at least month. on DVD. Maybe some stuff didn't make the video, but that's the first one I remember. 
So Strong says Jack Evans is AWOL. He guesses the decision of what side of Generation Next to pick is too hard for him to deal with right now. Roddy says as a result, he's pulling Generation Next out of the tag title match tonight because he and Strong were in it, saying that he when he wins the tag titles, he's going to win them with Jack. Uh, Roddy says instead he's going to take on all of CM Punk and Steve Carino's students, and he wants them now. So this starts what Cage Match builds as a four-on-one handicap match. Really, it's a gauntlet match. It's one guy coming out at a time. What a great, uh, what a great replacement if you were expecting to see Roderick Strong and Jack Evans team up. But <laughs> but I do wonder, like maybe for the live crowd, they did announce it in advance and they're just pretending on the DVD that it's impromptu. I don't know. I'm not sure. Joe, did you get any idea that this was coming? Or I uh, No, I, I think this was just kind of impromptu from what I, what I recall. Hmm. I fact, remember it's being announced beforehand. Um. I think there was a note I left out where something like the Ring of Honor teased like there was going to be a big replacement or something. But uh, there was, I, not- um, I remember, yeah, that was like a storyline going into it. Like there might be a replacement. And one of the rumors was uh, someone from um, uh, up in uh, Canada, I think. I, I forget the Fed, but uh, that was just kind of with a scuttlebutt going around. IWS. Didn't you say yeah, something like, I think in Europe where even like yeah. it was maybe El Generico or Kevin Steen or somebody like, um, cause I know X, I think excess works a little later in the year. So maybe the idea was him. He couldn't make it in time. I have no idea. Maybe this was just, they just and, pulled him from the tag match and th- that's it. Generico had just worked as weapon of mass destruction. Number two on the last show. So yeah, that would make sense. So, um, yeah, this turned out to be a four-on-one, uh, basically a gauntlet match. Roderick Strong defeated Alex Law, Evan Starsmore, Ricky Landell, and Shane Hagedorn in 629. So basically how it went down is Hagedorn came out first. He immediately got chopped and slapped for his trouble. He takes a backbreaker and a slam into the turnbuckle. Then he falls to a half-Nelson backbreaker in about half a minute, I would say. He didn't land a single offensive move for Shane. Uh, Evan Starsmore, another CM Punk student, immediately runs into the ring. He also gets destroyed by Strong. Uh, Roddy hits another variation on a half-Nelson backbreaker, which was probably the planned finish, but Starsmore unfortunately ends the spot right near the ropes, and the ref won't count it because technically his feet are under the ropes. So Strong, you can kind of tell, it's like you can tell it was supposed to be the finish, so Strong instead just picks him up again and just absolutely murders him with a powerbomb, Maybe like an angry powerbomb for the win. Then the first of Steve Carino's two students comes out. It's Alex Law. He runs in. He actually gets some offense. He uh, immediately scores with some chops and kicks. He then tries Arana, and Strong immediately turns it to a powerbomb. Backbreaker. He goes for the pin, but pulls him up at the two count. Then Strong flips him from a suplex into a different backbreaker for the win. Finally, Ricky Landell runs in, who I believe was Carino's star student, his Davey Andrews equivalent. Um... He's the only guy in the gauntlet who was not wearing all black, kind of like New Japan Young Lion style gear. He goes blow for blow with Roderick for about 10 seconds. And for the second time or two or three shows, uh, Roddy's mouth is all busted open. Uh, Landau actually gets in a bunch of offense as Nulty tries super hard to sell a potential upset. I felt like this whole show, Nulty was trying to get super loud and overselling certain things. I felt like that he had kind of turned a bad corner on this show. Uh, Roderick cut him off with an eye poke and took control, but unfortunately, when he goes for his fireman, fireman's carry drop into a double knees to the stomach, Landell either didn't want to take the bump or didn't know how to take it because instead of just taking it on his stomach, he 
tries to land on his feet, and it's a clear botch that even Gabe has to acknowledge. Uh, Strong then murders him with a running boot, but Landell grabs the ropes on the two count. So Strong then hits him with an over-the-shoulder backbreaker, followed by a straight jacket camel clutch for the submission win. After the match, he decides to reapply the hold until Carino runs out, chases him away with a chair. Uh, Strong retreats to ringside, and he jaws with Carino from ringside. Carino's begging him to get in the ring and fight him. Crino gets on the mic and says, just a few years ago, Strong was as young as these kids, and no one took advantage of him. A fan of the crowd is heckling Crino during this, and Crino tells him to shut up, saying, quote, I'm the babyface, he's the heel, get it right. That gets a huge round of applause and a Crino chant from the crowd. Uh, Crino says it's fine with him if Strong wants to beat up on punk students, but not his. Crino puts over Boston and asks Strong to get in the ring with him right now, so he doesn't care about his ultimate endurance match. I wrote in my notes, way to put over the tag titles. He cares about kicking Strong's ass in front of all these people. Strong appears to big off. He walks to the ref, but we see like three seconds of this before we cut to a backstage promo. So before we get to anything else, uh, Joe, this was supposed to be a showcase for Ronald Strong. I feel in some ways it did. You saw a couple rough stretches from Evan Starsmore and uh, Ricky Landell, but I mean, what'd you... What are your thoughts on this? You know, again, another kind of different segment for Ring of Art. They don't do a lot of squashes like this. No, it's this didn't make me terribly compelled to see a Carino strong feud down the line. I wasn't angry about it. At one point, Nolte was like, you know, Strong's been at it for 10 minutes, so he's getting tired. And I was like, that can't be right. It had been four <laughs> minutes at that point. The whole thing went like six and a half. So yeah. Mark needs a new stopwatcher to call Green Lantern fan for uh, consulting. <laughs> uh, I do remember Hagedorn got heckled because he had worked the uh, the merch stand before. And now he was in the ring and he should have gotten on the mic and said, and I didn't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it was just some some quick squashes, some not very good. Poor Evan Starr's more, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to mess up. It's another thing to mess up and have to take horrendous abuse afterwards. But yeah, it, it got he was putting extra strong was putting extra something on that power ball afterwards. Like he was frustrated mm-hmm. that the finish didn't work out. Um, Matt, what did you think? Yeah. I mean, there's not a ton to say about the wrestling aspect of it. You know, obviously they had those botches. I mean, they are students, you know, like it's not, mm-hmm. not a shocking thing. I agree with you. Nolte was probably as bad on this show as he's been in a long time. The, anytime he yells, it's like somebody should have said, listen, you're yelling is not your thing. Don't do it. Yeah. Like, you know, his, his strong suit is, you know, the quiet storytelling analysis part of it. Like when he's trying to be Jim Ross, it's like the worst, like the worst, Um, you know, like up there with like, maybe not Donnie B bad, but like early Steve Carino on commentary bad, at least probably worse than that. Um, It just comes off as so insincere. Exactly. Like, it's like, just like trying way too hard. Um, But um, I, I, I guess I appreciated this in the sense of, like they're trying to do something with Roderick Strong. Like just watching it out of context would have made me feel nothing. But watching it in the context of every show, it's like this is the first time they're showcasing Roderick Strong and being like Roderick Strong is going to be his own person now. He's not just going to be like a, you know a heavy hitter for the other guys in Generation Next. He had he got mic time. He's starting like a little bit almost like a rivalry with Steve Carino. You know he he's 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 show trying to show a personality. So that to me you know, made this palatable. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it on that level. I, uh, I didn't really think much of it otherwise. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree that this is probably, you know, a sign. You know, we know later in the year Strong's going to get more of a push. He's going to get a couple of big world title matches against Brian Danielson. You know, he, he this is a year where he's going to get a big match against Matt Hardy when he makes his run. So, yeah, this is definitely an early sign that, you know, Gabe has – you know, some ideas in mind for strong, maybe not those exact ideas, but I, an idea towards pushing him a bit more this year. Um, I have a little note from a PW insider live report from a man named Jason Colasino. And I just thought I'd include this. The Roderick strong gauntlet was one of my favorite moments of the night. He seriously beat the living crap out of punk and Carino students and gave them some of the loudest and disturbing chops I've ever seen and heard. The most loudest and disturbing chops I've ever seen and heard. Roderick Roderick strong's chops when you're there live really did like, like the first time, the first time I saw Roderick strong live, like his chops really did like make me go, wow. Like it's, it's just different when you're in a small building and you actually hear the echo of those chops. He really does chop very hard. Yeah, and to be known for those chops when so many guys in the Indies were doing chops, like you got to have a real good chop. There's a lot of competition there. So um, the, so uh, Jason continues his live report. Heckler behind kept making fun of the underdeveloped students, including one joke about one student saying he should go back to gay porn. Very funny stuff. So, <laughs> Was that sarcastic? No, that was this he, guy was he, genuine. He this actually guy, thought that he actually thought that was very funny stuff. <laughs> his favorite. This was his favorite time of the night, and he really liked that heckler. Yeah, best. I just thought, you know what? It takes all kinds. Best match: uh, Roderick Strong Gauntlet. Best uh, <laughs> best joke: Hey, go back to gay porn. <laughs> okay. Uh, next, we have Brian Daniels. Brian, I said Brian Daniels. Stan. That's my favorite country. Um, Brian Danielson backstage. <laughs> And holy shit, not only is Brian Danielson's beard starting to emerge, it's really starting to get out get out there. Um, uh, okay, let me just go give you I just this is gonna be the picture for the show. Um Brian Danielson, he's cutting a very serious angry pro. Remember, this is the new angry, sm- even more intense than ever Brian Danielson. He's wearing a toque with ear flaps and a shirt that looks like he got from a thrift shore. I mean, a thrift store that says something to the effect of, it's covered with like ant, like cartoon animals that look like they came out of like a Lisa Frank folder. And the shirt says, someone who loves me got me this shirt from California. <laughs> it, it looks so fucking ridiculous. It's so Brian, it's so Brian phone. Danielson though. Exactly. You know, like he has not changed at all. <laughs> and, um, so. Brian then cuts a short, angry promo, which I cannot take seriously while he's wearing all this, about Homicide hurting his arm recently and how that just fuels his rage. All I can focus on is is, is the ear flaps and the t-shirt. Uh, Gabe says, cut on the promo. Allison Danger immediately walks into frame. She asks J- Danielson to join her new prophecy, saying that she'll get him anything he wants. Money, title shots, women. Brian just immediately shakes his head. No, he's having none of this. And he walks out the door as Danger begs for him to come back. I, wa- I really uh, wanted him. I really want him to, in his angry voice, be like, somebody loves me in California. <laughs> um, I, it's also funny, like, the idea, like, I know, you know, Matt, Brian Danielson, obviously, is interested in ladies. He has a kid, two kids and a wife. But, like, it's really interesting, like, the idea of, like, someone, like, come on, Brian, like, in 2005, I'll get you all the women you want. Like, I just couldn't take that seriously. Like, the funny thing is, if I actually did want to give him that gimmick, like, he probably could have done something with it just because he's, he's so good. And, like, you know, it would be, like, sort of an ironic sort of thing. But he yeah. probably could have done it. 
Yeah, he should have just said, yeah, point to that shirt like you were saying, saying, look, I don't need women, as you can tell by the shirt. Better when so, they tried better when they tried to make him be a virgin in WWE. Oh, yeah. It's amazing he recovered by that. Um so met his, met his back- wife that way, or got or got together with his <laughs> wife at least that way. Elsewhere backstage, Lacey is berating Cheech and Cloudy for not backing her up. She says, Deranged is no good to them right now. He's all messed up. She demands the in Scramble Cage that they kill Dunn and Marcos. She says, Asriel and Dixie's careers will be ended too in that match. Lacey then turns to yell more at Dun- Cheech and Cloudy, and the camera takes this opportunity to zoom in on her ass until she catches the cameraman doing it and screams at the cameraman. So, you know, we don't keep it updated anymore on man and woman violence or all the gross stuff, but... Rest assured, it's continuing to happen in 2005. Um, cut to a little graphic telling us that Scramble Cage returns on the next show, which is February 19th in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Part of the third anniversary week celebration. It's going to be an entire you know month with three shows celebrating the third anniversary. Next up, we have a match that did not make the show. It was only there for the live people. I guess they edited it for time because this DVD did come out right around three hours. So, Joe, I, hope you, ha- Joe, I hope you have your move-for-move move notes on this yeah. one. Uh, I got my play-by-play. <laughs> this worry. Jay Lethal and Josh Daniels defeated the outcast killers of Diablo Santiago and Oman Tortuga with Prince Nana. Uh, Sean Radikin, who is also there live, he is the Bizarro World uh, Joe Gagne, because so often he's at the shows that Joe is on covering, because they're both, I guess, in the Boston area. Sean Radikin wrote, um, before the match, Nana got on the mic and said Boston was smelly, and that's why John Walters wasn't here tonight. Nana gave Tortuga and Santiago some deodorant to hand out to some particularly smelly fans in the crowd. Lethal eventually won the match with this dragon suplex. After the match, Nana walked out on the outcast killers. So, yeah, none of this made tape. Uh, Joe, do you have any thoughts from this match? Um, no, nothing else. Uh... Did you get any deodorant, <laughs> Joe? No, nah, it was very hot in that building, even despite it being January. It would not have been the worst idea. Joe had, uh, Joe, no, had no. Joe had smelly views on apartheid, but he actually smelled just fine. So oh, thank you. Yes. Oh, Nana said some guy in the crowd smelled like a period, which <laughs> may have been why this segment was cut. I don't know, but um, mm. well, I mean, even if this went like six or seven minutes, that would have been they would have had to edit something else out. But poor, poor Jay Lethal, you know, he's in the midst of kind of a push and, you know, poor Josh Daniels, who doesn't get to work ring of honor that often, you know, you make the show, you work a match and you, you don't even make the DVD, but it happens. Um, next up the ring of honor tag team title, ultimate endurance match, the Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero defeated CM Punk and Steve Carino and the Carnage crew. And in the first fall was a scramble match. The Carnage crew got eliminated in 437 when Loke tapped out to CM Punk's Anaconda Vice. And then the second fall was a regular wrestling match. Remember, the stipulations of alternate endurance are supposed to be every fall is a different stip. The falls in this one were scramble and regular wrestling match. The Havana Pitbulls defeated CM Punk and Steve Carino in 2239 when Reyes pinned Punk after the Pitbulls hit the demolition decapitation knee drop. Um, Joe, I'll give it to you, but first I'll say there's another thing that was not on this DVD that was edited out that was apparently happened because from the live reports I read, Steve Carino did apparently a long um, ring entrance that uh, Sean Radikin wrote in his report didn't catch on with the fans where I guess he went on with a lot of local sports heroes and it apparently was the first one of these that did not get over and maybe for time or maybe because it didn't get over that too was I guess cut out of the DVD. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. Um, Carino did his entrance. He handed Bobby Cruz a list of great Boston athletes, but it was just people like who left like or 
like Roger Clemens, Grady Little, Nomar Garcia Parra, like like not heroes, but Bobby Cruz, who I guess carries a list of great Boston athletes around with him, <laughs> read the uh, you know the the names you would expect like Larry Bird and whatnot, and the yeah the segment we were in the midst of a very good winning streak in Boston sports with World Series and NFL championships, so. Yeah, Bill Buckner just didn't really upset us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> also, wasn't uh, Karina supposed to be the babyface? Didn't he just yell that like yeah. a minute earlier? Yeah, that, that's a really yeah bizarre thing. Matt, what did you think about this match? Um, you kind of gave a hint to me when we were chatting like a week or two ago, but uh, let me let, let's see how let, let's hear you expand on. I, I have a feeling you're not a huge fan of this match. Yeah, I um I didn't like this. <laughs> you know, it started off bad because you know like. Evans and Strong were the best team in the match, and then you find out they're not in it. So that's like a one strike against it. Um, the scramble part was, I thought, a bad scramble. I thought it was messy. You know, they did some, you know, they did some moves, like, but I didn't think it flowed. I don't, I didn't think any of the moves were like super noteworthy. Um, you know, Punk won with a with a tap out on the Anaconda device, which I guess you don't see too often in a in a scramble. Um, but I thought it was awkward the whole time. You know, like there's really like I'm looking at my notes and there's really nothing so standout. Like one thing I noted was like Devito just started out doing like traditional wrestling with Punk and hitting like standing drop kicks, and it's like first of all you don't see it from Devito too often. It's also an interesting way to start a scramble. Um, you know, like they 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 break up a, a Carnage Plex uh, after Carino super kicks Loke, but then they eventually hit one. Um, Carino does a double like DDT stunner combination on the Pitbulls. Romero does a dive onto Punk and Devito, and like just I don't know, not really much super interesting. Um, I didn't really like it. Um, I thought it was I thought it was like an actively bad scramble, but I liked it more than the wrestling match. Like I know that you um, you really were not a big fan of um, of the Pitbulls. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't either. But you really, I mean, if you look listen to our year end uh, two thousand four awards quote unquote um trevor really hated the havana pitbulls uh over overrating uh, reputation overrated reputation in 2004 and this is where i really felt it. it i mean it's not it wasn't all their fault because i i actually blame like carino's whole thing a little bit too um you know i don't think him and punk had the best in like tag team chemistry but you know this is obviously a trend right for um for the Havana Pitbulls. Like, just, there's a lot of stuff that they do, and it doesn't feel like it, like, builds excitement. It doesn't feel like it flows. It doesn't really, like, add up to much. And by the end of the match, you're just like, uh, what? And then, you know, and then I think it's it's also made worse by the fact that Nolte, like, overpraises them so much. Um, like, when he goes, Romero and Reyes wrestling with such confidence right now, but, like, they all they they seem hesitant and awkward to me. And then like later on, he calls them so smooth, and I'm just like, is he talking about their skin? Because I'm not seeing it. Like, and it's it's just you know I'm I'm not as against them as you are like generally, but I really did not like them here. Um, in fact, my favorite spot of the whole match is when um, wait let me let me find it so I can describe it correctly because I did write it down. Okay, so outside the ring. Um, I know this. Yeah, so so what happens was is um, um, Reyes does like a um, like Romero does some move, and outside the ring, Smokes is standing there, and Romero like tries to do a jumping high five with him, but he misses. 
Romero misses and falls down. Um, <laughs> like Smokes knocks him down, and the crowd chants, "You fucked up," and like that is like that actually woke me up. There's some other stuff that's really <laughs> what what. I just think the idea of like like I imagine you sleeping during the match. Like I took it almost literally, even though I know you didn't end that way. Like, well, the high five, what? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, kind of. There's another thing where Punk does corner punches on Romero as the crowd counts to sixteen, and he yells at a woman in the crowd. That's a lot of dicks. Which is just like, man, Punk. Punk was just not in a good place with women either. I think yeah. around this time, that's what it seems like to me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. They do like. They do, like, the arm-pulling octopus, like, you know, like Romero does. That's a cool move. Uh, Reyes does, like, a sitting abdominal stretch. Then Romero does one. You know, um, Punk fucks up a sunset flip really badly, completely misses Reyes, so Reyes just stomps on him. Like, it's just, like, one thing that's off after another. Um, you know, like, every, like I, you, you don't know how many times in my notes I, write, I wrote, the Rottweilers slow it back down. <laughs> Like it just it just keeps happening until and then uh, Carino hits a Northern Lights bomb on Romero and Punk. You know he gets the hot tag, and Punk actually gets booed when he's tagging back in. Like I actually like forgot how often Punk got not that great babyface reactions in ROH, um, but I've noticed it. Like there are certain, just certain places where Punk is not getting the reactions of like the super top babyface that I would expect him to get, and this show was was one of them. Um, but yeah, Punk hits Shining Wizard, locks in the Anaconda Vice, sm- smokes, distracts the ref, and then Roderick Strong comes out and hits Carino with the chair and the knee uh, and drops his knee on the guardrail. And uh, the Rottweilers then hit the uh, the double team, you know, the demolition knee drop on Punk for the win. Um, yeah, it wasn't just the Pitbull's fault, so I don't want to say that, but I-, I don't think this team has good ke- – these two teams have good chemistry at all, and I'm just not sold on Punk and Carino as a team in general either. So, um, this is kind of funny. I think I'm a little higher on this match than you, while still not loving. I, I thought this match was average, but like for me, that's kind of where the pitbulls are. I think I went in like so. It it everything kind of flipped for me because I feel like a lot of these pitbull matches they get hurt by me knowing how hyped these guys were and even doing our last episode where they finished high on some year-end lists of the best tag teams. And so every match I keep expecting to, hoping to see that and keep going, what am I missing? Where this match, you, who I know you're, you're not quite as frustrated with them as me, you told me before I watched it, rewatched it, like, you know, oh, I think this is like the worst one they've had, worst performance they've had. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to hate this. And then I was like, well, it's average. It, 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 it's it's like not great. It's not particularly good. But um, it, to me, it was kind of just par for the course. And so I almost ended up enjoying it a little bit more just because I was like, oh, well, this is the same Pitbulls thing where it's not like painful to watch. But does it like you said, perfect description, do, what they do never really builds. It doesn't really add up to anything. And no, nothing they do is really more becomes more than the sum of its parts. And the parts aren't that great to begin with. Um I also think another problem is I know they had to change this match on the fly because originally it was going to be Strong and Evans as the fourth team, and Ultimate Endurance matches usually are three steps with four teams, a new step every fall. But I did feel like scramble matches and tag matches aren't that different from each other because tag matches usually – scramble matches, the only step a scramble match has is the idea that – when a wrestler goes to the floor, they don't have to make a tag. Their partner can run in. But usually what that just means is it's going to be a crazy spot. That's where everyone's running in and out of the ring and doesn't care. But usually tag matches end in a sequence like that. So I felt like you might as well just call this a three-way tag match because it wasn't that different. And um, 
I actually, I, I think I like the scramble part a little more than you. I thought it was very sloppy and you could tell these teams aren't suited for the scramble, but they tried to at least make it kind of fast paced everyone in out doing what they could. Um, the, and then the, that second long fall, which was basically, they just got the carnage crew out of the way in a few minutes. It was like, okay, let's do what we actually want to do, which is a long, uh, pit bulls match with, uh, Carino and punk. And it was, it was a pit bulls match. It, it's time for a classic Trevor Dame food analogy. Um, there's a bakery I don't like in my city. It, and it's not that the food is bad. It's that every baked good tastes like white bread. Like the strudel tastes like white bread. The the donuts taste like just a loaf of white bread. Everything tastes like white bread. Like there's no soul. It's not – and does white bread taste bad? No, but there's no soul to it. There's no flavor to it. It's sounds, just, it sounds like they don't put any sugar in it is what the real problem is. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the problem with the pit bulls, Matt. There's no sugar in the pit bulls. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't say there's anything that's that like, Oh, they're botching everywhere. Oh, like, you know, they do a style I hate. It's just everything they do is white bread. It, it, it's just bland. And it doesn't, it doesn't leave an impression on you. I will say in this match, um, Rocky Romero, I think you started to see the first signs of some burgeoning, like charisma from Rocky Romero. Like he, uh, he plays to the crowd a little bit. And actually, actually, I just I don't want to interrupt, but like when Rocky Romero gets charisma, he literally adds sugar because isn't Asukar his 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 <laughs> saying? Exactly, so Matt. Yes. It all comes full circle, uh-huh. like a donut. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> it, it, um, I, I guarantee we did not plan that before the show. Um, so. Yeah, like like Romero, he does when he does even though he does the high five that is a botch. It's one of the most entertaining parts of the bet, and the fact that he was at least willing to do like a big running high five with Julius Smokes shows that he's at least like coming out of his shell a little bit. And um, I was more noticing when I'm just looking at my notes before other other things. Like so many of my notes have nothing to do with the match, which I guess shows my entertainment, how entertained I was by the match. Like um. Well, okay, this one does. In the first fall, Reyes breaks up a, a, a pin attempt that DeVito is making on Steve Carino, and Gabe even openly wonders, like, why would you do that? Like, it's an elimination match. Wouldn't you want one of the teams to be eliminated? Like, why would you break up a pinfall attempt when it's not one of your guys being pinned? And I think Reyes maybe just forgot what the rules of this match were for a second. Um Nolte actually just says, well, maybe his mind wandered in the middle of the match, which maybe the pitbulls are so boring that even they are starting to, their minds are wandering during the match. I don't know. Um, on commentary, Nolte says the Anaconda Vice is Steve Carino's hold, which uh, is not true. Um, there's some boos I noticed when the car crew got eliminated early. Um, let me just, I'm just trying to look at my notes. Well, actually, Joe, while I look at my notes, what did you think about? We've, we've plowed on long about this. Did you think we way underrated this match? I bet you love this match, Joe. Mm, no. <laughs> uh, I thought the, yeah, the scramble segment was a, a, a bit of a mess. And they really, once Evans and Strong dropped out, the, they should have found something else for the Carnage crew to do and at least have a straight up tag title match. And for a while, I was actually enjoying that segment. I thought, you know, when they stuck to standard tag parameters there, with the uh, you know Carino and, and Punk looking good to start, and the Pitbulls cutting them off, I enjoyed that portion. There was a, a kind of a funny bit where Carino and, and Punk kind of mess up a double team. Like Carino calls a double elbow, and Punk does a clothesline. I kind of got a, a chuckle out of that, and 
finally, when Carino gets the hot tag, he's almost immediately cut off by the pit bulls, and we kind of just reset. And it's like, oh, and that really that really dragged the match down for me. It's just too much pit bulls on offense there. It it, it wasn't bad, but uh, not not great. And um, th- another interesting thing was before the match, Carino keeps pointing at somebody in the crowd, and uh, he keeps trying to get Punk to pay attention. Finally, gets Punk to pay attention, and he points at the guy, this thing in the crowd that we never see. And Punk has a huge laugh, and I was just telling Joe uh, how grateful I am for his recaps that he wrote at the time, which you can find deep in the CubsFan.com. He still has recaps of a lot of these shows that Joe's a guest on. So if you want to hear read Joe's uh, written views, that's a great thing to look at. He has some notes probably that don't make it into the shows, but. I was looking all over Frank and out in live reports trying to find out what the hell, like, what was this? Why, why did they keep pointing at somebody? And I couldn't find anywhere. And of course, the last thing I read is Joe's recap. And Joe, you had the answers. So this can be documented, documented in history. It will not be forgotten. Joe, what tickled Steve Carino and CM Punk so much that they kept pointing at it before the match? Uh, someone had a sign in the crowd with, I don't remember if it was a picture of Punk or just his name, and it said Booker's Pet. So. <laughs> Presumably in, uh, in regards to Gabe. And, and that goes to uh, – kind of ties in with um, Matt's point, which was, yeah, Punk – I think another thing that maybe hurt this match is Punk is clearly trying – this is the phase of his career where he's like the biggest pure intentional baby face. And, he, and here in Boston, much like New Jersey – like, there are some markets that just hate him. Like, when he gets tagged in, when he makes comebacks, like, the crowd boos loudly. And they do not like CM Punk in Boston, at least on this night. It's funny, like, in Chicago, I think in Ohio, like, the Midwest, they like him on when he's a face. But I guess, and I think Philly, too, even. I, I think it's New Jersey, and I think it's Boston really do not like CM Punk. Um, and, and and I don't even know if it's, it's if it's all of Jersey or if it's just, like, the Rexplex. Yeah. <laughs> Um, a couple other little moments I was looking at commentary. First off, one is uh, Nalty almost got inaudible on commentary at times. Like it felt like he was talking and all of a sudden you could, couldn't hear him, but that luckily gets fixed or maybe unluckily depending on how you feel about his performance tonight. Um, let me just take a quick look here. Um, Gabe really tries to put over the Anaconda Vice. Like Punk is just starting to use it. He started to use it on the last show. He he notes how tough and rare it is for Loke to submit in a match. So he's really putting over like Loke wouldn't just submit to anything. And he's submitting to the Anaconda Vice. So this is a huge, you know, new submission for CM Punk. And then I think the part that was really kind of goofy at the end on commentary was um Punk uses the Anaconda Vice at the end. Gabe goes, that made Loke tap. And then he goes, that made Alex Shelley tap to it on the last show. And then Gabe kind of pauses. He goes, that's a very impressive list. And it's a list of two people. He's, he's done it for two shows. Like It's like he was trying to think of more names, but there was two names. And uh, that's a very impressive list. A, a Loke and Alex Shelley. Um, so that was the match. And like Matt said, it ended with interference where Strong took out Steve Carino and left Punk alone to be taken out 2-1-1. We cut to – I will say one thing I did like, even though you know maybe the, the Strong matches tonight weren't that interesting, entertaining in some respects, like I do like that everything in this Strong-Carino feud kind of at least builds to the next step. Like last show, final battle. Strong and Creno wrestled on opposite sides in a tag match. This show, you know, 
Strong decides then to call out Carino's students. He, he wrestles them and he embarrasses them and won't let go of a hold on one of them. So Carino calls them out and, and, uh, uh, in a promo and challenges into a fight. Strong wusses out, won't do it. Then Strong attacks Carino during his match. So like, and they're going to have a match on the next show. So it's not like, like the most in-depth, exciting feud ever, but very quickly in the span of two shows, they've done like six steps and every step logically leads to the next step. So I at least appreciate that. But anyway, um, we cut to a clip of Loki wrestling Jushin Liger as Gabe in a voiceover tells us that Loki has been suspended indefinitely for attacking a ref at final battle. He, and he, in fact, he won't be back for like five months. We then cut to a clip of James Gibson wrestling CM Punk at FIP. And Gabe tells us that Ring of Honor has come to terms with Gibson and he will be making his debut in Ring of Honor very soon, which he will be. Next up, we have Samoa Joe with Jay Lethal in his corner, defeating Nigel McGuinness by submission in 14 minutes, 30 seconds, when he made him tap out to a rear naked choke. This is the first time match that Joe has wrestled post being world champion. So instead of coming out to uh, the classic iconic, the champ is here, he comes out to Mama Says Knock You Out by LL Cool J, which is also a great fitting theme for Joe. I think this might have been the first match these two ever had, at least in Ring of Honor it was. Uh, Joe, what did you think about this match? I like this a lot. This was a winner and loser go on to do commentary in the WWE in the uh, the years ahead. And like you said, <laughs> yeah. the um the the theme music was a a big question going into the show. Like, what would Joe use? He can't use his the champ is here. He's not the champ. So he just came out to L Cool J, and that was that. And um, to give some praise, I actually thought Mark Nolte did a good job in this match. He was talking about you know. How Joe is still a big target, even though he's not the champ, because that's an easy beating him is an easy pass to getting a world title shot, and just kind of addressing how Joe would approach his post-title run career. I thought he did a good job there. You know, I, I like the story of this match where you know Joe is Joe, but Nigel stands up to him. They beat the holy hell out of each other, and Joe hits. I remember just a vicious DVD at the end there, and, and gets the tap. And I think this was my favorite uh, the match of the show. This was this was good stuff. Um, I, I like this match. I thought it was a little, it was like, I would give it like three and a quarter stars, maybe, maybe three and a half, but or like it was good, but disappointing. But the thing is, it wasn't disappointing in a, in a bad way in the sense of there are times where you watch a match between two guys and you go, they just didn't click or, or, you know, there was, they went a bad direction where this match, I felt like they weren't trying to have like a great show stealing match. Like I came away from this match feeling like that was a good match. And they could, they, these two are capable of a great match, but they're, they weren't shooting for it. Like Joe in this match for the first half or so, he's kind of taking it at a bit of a slower pace. Like he's not treating, he's treating it like it's any other like standard B tier title defense, even though it's no longer a title defense. Like he's not treating Nigel like a CM Punk or like an Austin Aries even, you know, and as the match keeps continuing, Nigel keeps ramping it up and it gets better and better. And I feel but like, you know, they they didn't treat this like Joe was facing a top contender. They treated it kind of like what it was, which is Joe is featuring a good pros is facing a good prospect who's not quite on Joe's level yet. And I really liked um I thought this match got kept getting better. I liked that Nigel did the headstand and commentary actually did point out that uh 
when they did a recent tag match against each other at the weekend of Thunder Week double shot, you know, Joe had it scouted. This time Joe goes to run and kick him in the head in the handstand, just like that match. But Nigel has it scouted and get and moves out of the way. And Joe just gets caught in the ropes. And then later he does the headstand a second time and it works. And then later he goes for the headstand the third time. And Joe has the scouting scouted and takes off. I like that little callback. I thought that was nice. Um, there's a moment in the middle or last third that I really liked where, uh, Joe is like firing up and hitting, you know, Nigel with some stiff shots and, um, Nigel fires. I feel like a lot of wrestlers, when Joe kind of fires up, they get kind of meek and it's like, well, it's just Joe's time to shine and I'm going to take a great ass kicking. And I feel like you could kind of see part of what makes Nigel special where he fires up and hits really hard, like forearms back like he when joe raises his intensity nigel matches it and i feel like a lot of wrestlers they 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 kind of get bullied i've heard people like chris hero when he was doing the bully gimmick on the indies being like some wrestlers say i eat people up but it's like i give them all the comebacks they need they just gotta fight for their comeback i feel like nigel showed a great example here of like he fought and stood up to the big like character and earned his comeback and I thought this match also, it ended with its best match. I thought the last minute was a great, like the ending to a great match, a match that like in an alternate universe, you know, they had a whole great match and we got to see the last minute of it because Joe hits that Death Alley driver. And like Joe says, I think Joe has one of the underrated Joe, Samoa Joe, not Joe Gagney, has one of the underrated uh, Death Valley drivers and wrestling. He like holds onto it almost like a cradle and it's like just a really high impact, like high on the shoulders and stuff. And it looks just deadly. And then he does the big like MMA knees to the downed opponent and then right into the choke. And it's just that sequence is so cool. It's one of those, those segments where you can just see like Joe like flips the switches, like you're going to die now. And overall good match, not great match, but I liked it. I thought on uh, Nigel acquitted himself well here. And Matt, before I give it to you, I guess I would just say, I think maybe I'm wrong, but tell me if you disagree. I think Joe got like a really great reaction from the crowd. It was almost like a reaction, like to tell him, like, we know you lost the title, but we still love you. Like, I feel like other than Mick Foley in the main event, he got like the loudest reaction on the show here on this match. Uh, yeah, Joe, um, I would say that's true about Joe. I think, you know, Nigel was a total baby face here, but he was by default the heel because Joe was so beloved. Um, like I definitely noticed that. I also thought Joe like really came out just strong. Like there was a good performance by him. Like he seemed very energetic, ready to go. Like, you know, just like, you know, it seemed like almost like excited to, to, you know, to start his new era, I guess a little bit, you know, he's, um, you know, like not, you know, like basically what you said is what I agree with, um, Nigel's doing his wacky counters, you know, bouncing off the ropes. Joe is, is, uh, catching him. Nigel, um, gets his wackiness stopped by Joe strikes, I would say. Um, and that's what leads to Nigel becoming more of like the, the later Nigel where he's doing strikes and standing up to Joe, like you said, and screaming in Joe's face and all that stuff. I also liked, in the in the tag team match, Joe became the first person to counter Nigel's headstand with the running boot. Um, this time, Nigel saw it coming and got out of the way before Joe could nail it. And I thought that was cool, like that he showed it was scouted. Because then later, you know, when the timing is better, Joe actually does the same counter again and hits the running boot. So I like that, that like Nigel scouted Joe's move, um, avoided it. 
And then Joe figured out a way to make sure that Nigel didn't avoid it, probably just by beating him down a little bit more. I like that. Um, uh, some Nolte – I agree with you, Joe, that Nolte was better, but there were some moments like when um, when Joe does the elbow suicida and Nolte screams, the Panther strikes. It's like, <laughs> anytime he does that to me, it's very cringe. I don't know. Um, there was also – there was also um, – at one point, Nigel, I mean, Nolte says, in some ways, Joe still has a title to defend, and that's the title of legend. So I'm thinking, does that mean if Nigel beats Joe, Nigel becomes a legend? Because <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that title was exactly on the line at this point. Um, there's some other uh, comedy stuff, I mean, not comedy, commentary stuff, like Gabe talking about how ROH has no politics and is all about ability. There's no writers. It doesn't matter if you kiss ass. And I'm thinking, there's no writers, huh? So, uh, just all, no, nothing, nothing is, uh, nothing is planned, apparently, in ROH. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, the one thing I did feel bad for Nigel about is nobody bought the arm submission, which still doesn't have a name, by the way. Still I, doesn't yeah, have a name. Yeah. Like, what, for what how else? long? You know, we should have, on Through the Years, we were famous for the man-on-woman violent streak counter where we kept track of how many shows in a row. We should have kept a, if I had known, we should have kept a track of how many shows Nigel's done this goddamn arm submission it, it was definitely, that still doesn't have a name. It, it was one of the Reborn shows, like Reborn Stage 1 or 2. So it it's, is insane. So that that's been that's like you're talking about like nine months now. So this <laughs> uh, that arm submission. I guess that's actually what it's called. That arm submission. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, nobody bought it. I guess just because you know Joe's not going to lose. So this match probably would have been the the other match that I would say was my favorite. Either this or the opener of the sh- of the show. I just I thought this was just like a like a like a fun match. Just well paced. You know, people that you wa- liked watching. Everything was well worked. The one critique I would have is that Joe should have gotten a chance on this show to do some sort of promo to give like a mission statement about his 2005. He just lost the title. Let's hear what he's thinking. Let's hear what he wants. Even in the in the Foley segment later, he doesn't really address that important aspect of what's going on with him. I would have appreciated that. But ultimately, it's a minor quibble, I guess, um, because the match was good. That, that's a great point, and uh, I'll say this: this is I like this match. It was not my favorite match of the night, but we got a person that agrees and a person that disagrees with you two because Sean Radikin, the Bizarro World uh, Joe Gagne, wrote that this was the best match of the night. That was his opinion. And Dave Meltzer, this is a weird thing. Um, Dave Meltzer did not review many Ring of Honor DVDs because he got them weeks after the fact. Occasionally, he'd review like a major match. For some reason, Dave Meltzer got a copy of It All Begins and like went out of his way to review in depth the top three matches and give star rings to them and everything when like there was much bigger shows he wouldn't do this for. I, I assume it's just because he was probably so excited after the Joe Punk trilogy and the final battle match, which he wrote extensively about. That he was like, I'm going to watch whatever the next show is and cover that too. So I've got thoughts from him on the top three matches. So this is Dave on Samoa Joe versus Nigel McGuinness. Dave wrote, Samoa Joe's win over Nigel McGuinness was three and a half stars. McGuinness has the British style, which is currently in vogue on the indies after being basically dormant for years, so it is, now looks innovative, and he's so smooth th- with it that it, almost all his ma- of his matches are going to be fun to watch. Joe's style is totally different, but the one thing regarding Joe is that that is underrated is his ability to work with people of different styles. They did a pride-like finish with Joe doing a series of knees to the ribs to set up the choke. So this, I will say Dave gives two more matches tonight, higher rings than that, but... Um, 
I'm probably more in line with Dave's rating, but uh, just looking at my notes for the last thing here, um, um, Nigel's mouth got bloodied after the final scenes. We got two blade mouths on this show. And one other little moment I noticed, Matt, on commentary was at one point, Nulty saying Gabe, oh, he doesn't say Gabe, he says like Jimmy, but that's Gabe's pen, like announcer name. He was like, you're looking like a prophet for saying that earlier, to, earlier that Nigel would be a breakout star in 2005. And Gabe just says very smugly, well, I know how to pick those stars, Mark. And I just thought, oh, Gabe, you little rascal. And, you, you know, clearly you can tell from the expansion and the good reviews, like, this is Gabe and Ring of Honor, like, very high on the, like, like, like they're feeling good about themselves after everything they've been through. And you can tell there's, there's a bit of that kind of vibe and momentum behind them. Um, to be, well, to his credit, then, if he's really feeling all arrogant like that, it didn't really, like, it wasn't like pride come up before the fall, because things just kept getting better for a while, yeah. I would say, booking wise. Yeah, he was just feeling his wild oats here. He, yeah, he's yeah. he's he knows that they've gone through something and that they they're doing good now. And uh, brings us to the best of five series match number one, a tap out match. Homicide with Julius Smokes defeated Brian Danielson in sixteen minutes twenty eight seconds with a key lock. Um, this okay? How do I get it? Okay, this match starts with a brawl. It goes into the crowd. Um, after a minute, the the brawl goes to static. And then an off-air screen before we come back and we hear for, to the match for a couple seconds where Gabe's like, someone go to a pre-tape promo. Go to the Cornette promo. We then get an, a pre, a, that pre-tape promo with James Cornette somewhere else backstage. Jim cuts an angry promo about Bobby Heenan saying he wouldn't let the new blood take over, saying that he's a slim, trim 29-year-old that started in the business when he's 12. Uh, Cornette says he made a mistake treating Heenan like a has-been and an old man. So the next time they face off, he's going to treat him like it's old times. Cornette brings back his old Vince couldn't kill you, WCW couldn't kill you, cancer couldn't kill you line, and says he'll put Heenan out of wrestling. After that promo, we get back in the ring, and then we get a regular kind of tap-out match that goes the length of the time. So, by, by the way, that was a good promo. Like, I know it's fun to hate on Cornette these days, but that was a good promo. Yeah, it was. And Cornette's promos are usually have been good so far yeah. in Ring of Honor. But before I get into the match itself, if you're wondering, if you, if you watch this match and wonder what hell went on... Something legitimate happened here. I will go to both The Observer and Mike Johnson. First, The Observer. Dave wrote, The other strange deal was during the Brian Danielson versus Homicide tap-out match. The two brawled in the crowd. During the brawl, a fan was accidentally hit, and he was a relative of a guy who works in the building. It was a scene because legitimately they called security, who broke up the fight on the floor, as to... As to as opposed to fake ineptly broke it up as is usual in pro wrestling. As it was, they got back in the ring and the match was a lot better, although didn't have the heat expected with homicide winning. Everything ended up being squared away and there doesn't appear, there doesn't appear to be any problem stemming from it. Mike Johnson wrote, from what I understand, a staffer for the building got upset with the Ring of Honor wrestlers for going over the railing and into the crowd and trying to tell them to return to the ring. Homicide and Julius Smoke stayed in character and responded to the janitor, which led to his son, who isn't a fan, not realizing they were working and challenging them. The situation was quickly hashed out and resolved before the end of the evening. So either way, I mean, those stories are slightly divergent, but it is clear someone that works for the building was not happy with them brawling in the crowd. And you can actually see there's a guy, if you watch, there's a guy late in the in the brawling sequence in the crowd with a mustache who um, tells them, like, get it back in the ring. Like, he's seriously telling them, like, get in. And that's when they do the little static fake cut to everything else. But, so, definitely very weird. So, as a match, um, 
I like this match uh, a fair bit. I don't think it was great. I would probably give it like three and a half to three and three quarter stars. Um, I think one weird thing about it was the brawl in the crowd. I really liked actually. I gave yeah, this match I was going to say that it was like it was like really good brawling. Like yeah, like Dave said in that in the in that recap that like the match got better when it when it got in the ring from his live report to me. Like, the brawl was the best part. I thought, like, right from the start, one of them gets thrown into the fence, and, like, he hits them. I forget if it was Danielson or Homicide, but they land in the fans' front rows in their lap in a way where it looked like like a leg could have caught somebody. And I don't know if it's just because the building was had a lot of people or just the fans decided not to move. But unlike a lot of crowd brawls where the wrestlers, like, fight each other in the crowd, everyone kind of scurries away. Like, they were fighting, like, right in the crowd. Like, the fans weren't, were, were right on top of them, and that gave it a cool vibe, but maybe maybe too realistic a vibe, apparently, because it convinced people that worked in the building that it was, like, a real fight. And um, it was just a really good, intense brawl. And the problem was, then when it gets back in the ring, it just has a tap out match. Like they, the, the intensity, like they still clearly don't like each other the way they're wrestling and stuff. There's some intensity, but you had this really intense brawl and then you just have kind of a slightly intense submission match. And I thought that was a little weird. I also thought Danielson, he did some really cool submission work in this match where he wasn't really focused on one body part. Danielson wasn't really telling a story, but he did a couple submissions out of, um, Indian Deathlock Bridges, and he basically, including one, he basically did uh, Charlotte Flair's figure eight, bridging figure four before Charlotte Flair. I thought that was cool. I thought Homicide, I usually love when he works on a, on a body part, because usually he works on the neck, and he has a lot of really cool offense towards that. But I felt like in this match, he worked on Danielson's pre-existing arm injury, which he injured shows ago, which is smart. But I thought like a lot of his arm offense was just like, basic kind of stuff like he didn't work on the arm in an interesting way he just would do like cross arm breaker or i'm pulling the arm over the ropes and i felt like homicide is always gives 110 percent but i felt like this match was one of the rare times where i felt like homicide was kind of the thing dragging a match down which i hardly ever feel about like i i feel like danielson was doing a better job here with that than otherwise but uh, but overall like the mat work was good it was a good, entertaining match. Uh, I felt like maybe the the stop start with the crowd kind of hurt the momentum a bit, but overall, I liked the match. It wasn't it wasn't what I hope I I see when I see these two wrestle each other, but it was good. Um, so Joe, what were your thoughts on the match? I just remember live. I couldn't see a thing that was happening in the crowd. It was just like, oh, sure, sounds interesting, but just the where I happened to be situated, I couldn't see a thing. So that was uh disappointing. But I thought this was um. No, I thought this was very good. It was, it did kind of drop in intensity when they got it back to the ring, which is probably not ideal. But I think the stipulation put Danielson in a good situation to do a lot of selling, which he, of course, excels at. I did not like the spot where he just kind of gives up his submission hold at the end just because Julia Smokes got on the apron. I thought that made him kind of look like a dope that led right to him losing. I never liked that spot, but for what it was, I thought very good match. Not, not great. You know, but I, I know these two have had other matches. I've heard people say this was their best so far. I, I can't really speak to that. YouTube certainly could, but I thought very good. Matt, how about you? What did you think about all this? Um, yeah, I I was a bit disappointed in it. Um, I definitely agreed, obviously, as I already said, that the, the crowd brawling was really exciting. And when they did cut away, first of all, when Gabe was like was trying to like, act, like you know play up what was going on in the crowd, Gabe was like, "I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting really nervous." Which I just thought that was a 
a very enjoyable call by Gabe. Um, he called it another Rottweiler riot. Gabe now, since <laughs> those riots have ruined him, he now thinks everything is a riot. He does. He's like, um, it's like, it's like maybe, maybe, maybe they were actually all peaceful protests. Since that's really like the debate these <laughs> days. Like, which is it? Is it a riot or is it a peaceful protest? <laughs> but. Um, I also I thought it was funny that they did the gimmick where the broadcast cuts out because I don't know it's like clearly that's like you know there's some element of like cheekiness there when they do that because everyone knows it's not a broadcast you know like but they they have it go fuzzy like I think that's amusing still um, but yeah the match I mean one thing I did appreciate about the tap out match is that they really try to have a technical match like with a lot of holds and submission moves and obviously all the cool stuff that uh, Danielson does. I don't necessarily agree that Homicide was not totally giving his his 110% that he always does. I think it's just that compared to Danielson, you know, most guys don't have the creativity when it comes to holds, you know. You know, certain guys do, like Nigel, I think, does, and Shelly. But, you know, Danielson, like, you know, does all these different variations, and Nigel, I mean, and, and Homicide is just doing, you know, he's working the arm, like a wrestler would work the arm, you know what I mean? Um the thing that I didn't love was the lack of intensity. I didn't think the crowd was as hot for it as they maybe would have been if it was more seamless into the, you know the crowd brawling as opposed to the weird, um, awkward like stop and start that they did. Um, I, I I also noticed this is an era where Danielson is really leaning into the the silly aspect of the airplane spin. Yeah, because he does the airplane spin, you know, even as a uh, as the world champion. But he doesn't play up the oh, I'm dizzy, I'm going to jump into no one, and then you know, um, he does the airplane spin, um, and then he drop kicks the air. But then Homicide is is too dizzy to hit the Tope Cone Hilo at first, and then he does hit it, and it's good. But I I, th- I guess I guess I don't mind that. It's it's sort of like Danielson deciding that this is he's going to mix it up and this is what he's doing right now is doing the silly airplane spin stuff and i guess that's fine he does that for a while longer before he abandons that the comedy bits about it um i also wrote down what you said about the uh the bridging figure four is charlotte's move um and i also liked homicide catches him with his new arm submission and gabe calls that that arm submission that made Josh Daniels tap. Not to be confused with <laughs> that arm submission, which is Nigel's move. Um, it has that um, um, that extra extra uh, clause in there um, that made Josh Daniels tap. So that is, just so we can say, that is the name officially of Homicide's arm submission. It's called that arm submission that made Josh <laughs> Daniels tap. So just from now on, just mm. know that. I, it's, I, I also do think it's cool that they had Danielson lose his match. You know, I think yeah. that's a good way to start it. But I didn't like this as much as the two, 2004 matches that they had. And, and just to be clear, I, I don't think that Homicide didn't give like 100% effort. I just feel like it's rare to see a match where I'm like, Homicide's the one that's kind of making this match not as good as it could be. Like, I just thought his arm work could have been, like you said, there's nothing wrong with it, but I just thought Danielson was doing really inventive stuff and Homicide stuff was kind of basic. And I also agree about the crowd. Like, the crowd, the crowd was kind of weird for this match, and maybe it was the weirdness of the, of the crowd brawl that people like Joe couldn't see, you know, and then coming in the ring, maybe that hurt things, but like, this it was weird. Like sometimes I go, the crowd isn't that loud for this, but then there'd be some minor Danielson comeback, and the crowd would get really loud for Danielson's comeback for a few seconds, and I'd be like, I don't know. How, I, I, it was one of those matches where I'm like, I'm not sure how into this match these people are because every time I think they're not into it, 
they get loud. And every time I think, oh, maybe they're going to be get more into it, they start quieting down again. It was kind of a kind of a weird match like that. Um, Another thing I wonder if it's because if it's because they had to follow Samoa Joe, who was the guy most of the crowd came to see. Sometimes yeah. I, you know, I could that could be it also. That, that's a good point. A few little things I liked. Um, Danielson did like a spinning back kick. I've never seen him break out in Ring of Honor that I thought looked really good. Um, there was a moment where Homicide didn't like an arm lock, and Danielson German suplexed Homicide, and Homicide just immediately grabbed the arm lock again, which I liked as like a little tenacious moment of you know he's not going to give up on that. Uh, yeah, overall, like the problem with these guys is they're so good that good, you know, three and a half, whatever, three and a quarter, three and three quarters, whatever, is disappointing. But not everyone agreed with kind of our consensus because uh, Dave Meltzer, this was his match of the night. I'll read his recap. Next was the Homicide over Brian Danielson I Quit match. It's, it's a tap-out match, Dave. But uh, it started with an intense brawl in the stands. In the middle of the brawl, we were switched into a time machine to a 19, to 1986 and saw a Jim Cornette promo. It was all also all basic promo stuff. But today, because it's never done anymore, it came across as highly creative and innovative. But just for Cornette's delivery, it was awesome. Then Danielson and Homicide had a four-star match. It wasn't the I Quit on the mic deal, but really a tap-out match. Yes, it was, Dave. <laughs> As the, as, That's so funny. As they work to set up and exchange some very cool-looking submissions. This match is not for everyone because it's mostly exchanging holds on the mat. But if you're into that, this was excellent within its context. So this was Dave's favorite match of the night. He gave it four stars. So I, I just I just want to like take that into more absurdist directions. Like um, The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels had a ladder match. It wasn't a ladder match like there was a ladder and they were climbing, but it was more of like a, a Hell in a Cell type of match. Like <laughs> <laughs> obviously like not quite you know more understandable this one but i'm just trying to take that to more absurd levels they were climbing a ladder but the ladder was taller it had four sides and a roof like, like, like just the ladder was more of a cage <laughs> it was more of a square than a rectangle um so after the match, Julius Smokes attacks Dan. I guess we should also mention during the match, uh, Smokes actually interfered. He climbed to the top turnbuckle in full view of the ref, but Danielson gave him a body slam off the top turnbuckle. But anyway, after the match, Smokes is recovered. He attacks Danielson, and he and Rocky Romero hold him up as Homicide puts on brass knucks and grabs the mic to say he just that he just beat Brian at his own game. And this mat, five match series isn't going to be three out of five. Danielson's career is ending right now. Homicide goes to punch Danielson with the knucks, but Danielson kicks him away and then fights off all three Rottweilers before he hits Homicide with his own brass knuckles, as in he grabs Homicide's dropped brass knuckles, puts them on. Danielson stands over a fallen Homicide and says he may have lost at his own match, but next time he's going to fight Homicide in his match, a taped fist match. So a nice little bit of storytelling there where, like like you said, Matt, where you liked how Homicide beat Danielson at his own game. Well, now you got Danielson admitting that on the mic, but then like, you know what, I'm going to fight in a match, you know, suited to you. We're going to have a, like a, a taped fist brawl, basically. So uh, I, I also appreciated that this was the R- – I'm pretty sure the ROH debut of Brass Knuckles. I might be wrong about that. But I do think it's interesting that they used Brass Knuckles to set up a taped fist match. They should have had Homicide tape his fist. Just a really long sequence, like like two and a half minutes. He's just really he's getting Julius to cut the tape while like Romero holds Daniels, and just a long, long fist taping sequence. Or conversely, they could have instead of a tape fist match had brass knuckles on a pole. <laughs> if Vince Russo was breaking yeah. booking Ring of Honor, definitely. But R- um, ROH has n- I, I never did a match with a thing on a pole, as far as I can remember. I, I don't think, at least not in the time we've watched for sure. Yeah. So that brings us to. 
in a way the main event, in a way not. It's the main event match. There's a main event segment, as as Joe mentioned at the start of the show. Um, this is the Ring of Honor World Title match. Austin Aries makes his first defense of the title. He defeats Colt Cavana via pinball in 22 minutes, 14 seconds after he hits the 450 splash. Matt, I'm going to give first Sean this to you, and then Joe, and then me. But first, before that, I want to give you a question. So, not to go things too deeply, but the end of this match features Aries giving um, Colt Cabana a brain buster on the metal ring ramp that Ring of Honor recently got a few shows ago, and Colt sells it like death. They basically almost do a version of the uh, John Walters homicide thing where Gabe and the refs come out, they check on the guy for a long time, he eventually walks back into the ring, and the match ends after another couple spots. I thought this was all a work. I thought, if anything, they were playing up on that. And I still am not sure if it's a work or not, but Sean Radican definitely did not believe it was a work. He wrote in his notes from being there live, Aries gave Cabana a brain buster on the ramp, apparently injuring Cabana's neck. They should have just ended the match at this point, but they didn't. The crowd, which was already restless from the quality of some of the other matches on the card, chanted bullshit. Eventually, Cabana, who looked to be in a great deal of pain, crawled back into the ring. Aries tried to lift him, but Cabana was dead weight. Aries went to lift Cabana again, but Cabana rolled him up for a near fall. Aries then gave Cabana a brain buster, followed by the 450 splash for the pin. There's no way this match should have continued after Cabana initially injured his neck. With the neck injuries suffered by Benoit, Austin, and Angle, it would be a shame to see Cabana's career go down the drain because of a neck injury. So, Matt, first off, are you like me? Like, do you, part of me still doesn't believe this. Like, am I, an asshole here, or I well, mean, well, why do you assume that she, you know, like a dis, I mean, you know, Sean Radican became a more you know important member of the torch at the time, but it, it sounded to me like he was just writing a live report as a fan, so it didn't sound from that that he had any inside information. But so, so I still think it was a work. It still looked like it, unless I can you could find a report saying otherwise. Like, did the Observer say that Colt Cabana was hurt? I didn't have it in my update, but there is one thing I, I, I cut out that said that Colt Cabana was in doubt for a PW show, PWG show, because of the injury he had suffered at Ring of Honor, but he was still going to try and work it. I don't know if he ended up working it or not. Again, maybe they could even say that as a, as selling a gimmick, but like, I do know that was like either in like the Observer or the Torch sign, like that Colt doesn't know if he's going to be able to go to this PWG show he's booked on because he got hurt on this match. So, but Melter again, did not. I, I have no idea. But Melter did not report about a serious injury in the main event on his live report, or, or when no. he, when when the show first happened, right? No. So that's what makes me skeptical. Because I mean, it looks like a million worked angles that you've seen, right? Like yeah. he he does a like he does a really major move that you would think that Colt would sell, like it was he was really hurt, right? And it yeah. just it just and then they just do a bunch of like hope spots and and Aries wins. It seems too. Um, I don't know. It just seems it just seems too convenient for that to have been a real thing, but I guess it's possible. It just it just didn't sound from Radikin's report like he was saying he actually knew this. Yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I got you know again that other th- report. I should have included that in the notes, even though these notes are already huge. But like, um, but I guess Joe, going Joe, to the wait, match Joe. Now, well, I'm just curious, Joe. Oh, did Joe, you have any insight yeah. into like whether that was people that was seen as real at the time, or you or did you do you remember it being real at the time? Uh, I remember as it happened, a lot of people weren't sure what occurred because it was tough to see, you know, them fighting up on the ramp and then exactly what Ares did to him at the time. I think I'm not, I'm, there was kind of some sense like, oh, maybe this is real. I thought when, 
you know, if, if Colt really was hurt, they probably would have just gone to a finish and not done the the hope spot roll up at the end. So I'm not entirely sure myself. It's not like Colt got helped to the back afterwards, but that could have just been playing into the story. So I I do not know. Right. It wasn't like they were trying to stabilize his neck. They just like they just like had him, you know, over their over their shoulders and he walked yeah. to the back. So I yeah, I guess it'll be a mystery unless Colt wants to share. Um what I'll say is like um I did nothing about watching this made me think it was anything but a wrestling storyline until I read the notes doing the research afterwards. Like just watching it live, I never for a second thought this is a real injury. So right, right, take same. that for whatever you, you will. Um, Part of that's also I thought I would have heard. You know, like I know they had a cage yeah. match the next month and like it was fine. So um, yeah. But anyway, as far as the match, um, you know, I like – I appreciate it. They were definitely like trying stuff. Like Aries was kind of finding his voice, so to speak. Like immediately when the match starts, Cabana attacks Aries. So Aries just, and that's not a normal way to start a Cabana match. But then Aries goes out of the ring and like grabs the mic and is like, um, and is like, oh, this is Ring of Honor and you shouldn't start until you shake my hand. And so Aries actually shakes Cabana's hand, but then like they both go for a punch and, and Colt hits it first. And then Aries gets back on the mic and it's like, this is about wrestling. So Cabana has to wrestle if he wants the belt. So he's he's trying to do this like heel shtick. It clearly doesn't stick, right? I don't remember him doing yeah. this at any other match after this one. But like the idea is he's taking Cabana out of the game, by out of his off his game by getting out of the ring and do going on the mic and stuff. Um, but you know, then they then they go kind of slow down. They go back in the ring. Colt does uh, some push ups while he's Aries has him in a front face lock. I enjoyed that. Um, meanwhile, Nolte, he's he's trying to make a point that Aries could lose this match, and in order to make this point. He goes through an entire long-winded story about Ivan Koloff beating Bruno San Martino and losing in his first title defense to Pedro Morales. And it's like, all right, I mean, you could have just said Aries could lose, but hey, <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess that is what Nolte is there for. It just felt like it was a long, a long explanation to get there. I don't know. Because um, I, I felt like there was a certain point where, like, Gabe was like, okay, uh-huh, <laughs> like... <laughs> um, but you know, maybe that's my bias creeping in. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm all. Maybe I'm just done with uh, Nolte's commentary at this point. This wasn't a great night for Mark. Yeah, I, I don't think that's crazy to say. Yeah, um, but you know, they do. You know, Aries works over Colt's arm like that because that's what he hurt the last time. So it makes sense that he did that. But the pace is actually slower than a lot of the Aries matches that I'm used to, and the ones that he had in 2004. Um, uh, he so Aries is not in control most of the time, and actually at one point. Uh, Colt is on the ground, and Ares basically tries to stick both of his thumbs like all the way through Colt's eyes. And I'm like, wow, they really took that 2004 eye poke thing to a new level this year. Um, <laughs> like, but but um, Cabana, I think, besides some of the little early stuff, he is more serious here. But I don't know that it totally works. But at the same time, I remember the last Ares and Colt match in Boston where I said that the crowd wasn't into Cabana's wackiness. Um, so I guess it makes sense that he wasn't trying it here, but he was really going for a like main event attitude. You know, he was he was not leaning into his comedy persona much at all. Um, but you know, Cabana hit a missile drop kick. He he went at Aries with punches and elbows, which the crowd isn't totally with it. I was actually thinking maybe Boston wasn't the city to give Cabana a world title match in. Um, not that it's a big deal. Um, Cabana gets Ares in like a splash mountain position and spins and releases him. And I thought that got the biggest pop of the match so far. And like that's when the crowd started to get into it. 
Um, Cabana went for the Colt 45. Aries escaped that. Um, misses the 450. Then uh, Cabana hits the uh, hits the Acai Moonsault and counters a Brain Buster and actually hits the Colt 45. But like the crowd didn't react, and I was wondering if they didn't recognize the Colt 45 because it had been so long since he'd done it. And ROH, obviously, they grew their audience a lot since 2003. So I don't know. I, I, I wondered if the crowd even knew that was the Colt 45 because you'd think that would have gotten a big pop. And that's when they do the whole thing in the in the aisle way, and Aries does the Brain Buster on the ramp. And you get to the finish where uh, you know Aries, uh, you know Aries has to drag Colt in the ring, into the ring, and Gabe notes the eerie silence in the building. Although I think there were other moments in the match that felt like that, but I'm sure that it actually was true that everyone was worried. Um, Gabe himself did go out to check on Colt, so I guess that could be a sign that it was real. But you know that also could just be a sign they were selling it. Yeah. Um, like Aries is looking concerned in the ring. Um, but Colt crawls toward the ring himself, and I was I, actually the funny thing is when we mentioned if this is real, I was wondering if this was like they were reenacting Homicide and John Walters, like that's almost how it felt. But um, back in the ring, you know, um, the announcers tell him to just cover him, but instead he goes for the brainbuster. But Colt gets the small package, which I thought was actually a really good near fall. Like yeah, I didn't see that coming at all. And then he does the brainbuster, does the four fifty. But it, actually, this was a cool 450 because the way that Colt was positioned, Ares had to actually like step off the turnbuckle and onto the ropes to hit it. And I thought that made it look really cool. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the match had solid work. I liked that they tried a bunch of stuff. I don't know that all of it worked. Um, I, re- I, think, I think it's kind of good on the level a lot of matches on the show were. Like three and a quarter was probably where I would land. Um, it's a good match. Like a you know, in some ways, a, a very solid match. Joe, what do you think about this? I uh, just want to make a note at the end. I think Gabe says nine one one has been called, and I'm like, oh man, you thought just incredible got a good spot <laughs> in Massachusetts. So, uh, <laughs> so we get uh, choke slams here. Uh, <laughs> this match it kind of had a lot working against it. Aries just ended a monumentally long title reign. I don't think anyone would have thought you would lose the belt on his first defense. So you don't want to kind of burn through a good uh, title challenger here. So they had Colt here who kind of backed his way into a a title shot, which Aries even pointed out, but I thought it was a good match. I thought Colt did a good job. I thought a lot of his offense looked good. The whirly bird slam. I thought he hit a great acai moonsault. It was certainly much different from Samoa Joe matches where Joe's this monster. You have to overcome and Aries is someone who will kind of do whatever it takes to win, you know, uh, giving uh, Cabana brain buster on the ramp. And, you know, I just thought it was a, a, a good solid match that, um, you know, I, I probably, when you look at the match time and the circumstances, it probably exceeded my expectations. Not that it was great, but it was probably better than you would think looking in. So, um, I'm the high vote on this match. I this was my match of the night. I gave this three and three quarter stars. Uh, if I if I would give like Danielson Homicide and Nigel Joe both three and a half, so it's it's barely better. Um, there there this is a flawed match. Like um, I, I felt like a lot of this match was like the epitome of indie. Your move, your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, and I also feel like. Given that this whole storyline is built on the last time Colt was in Boston, Aries, you know, destroyed his shoulder and arm, and it, that took him out of action for months. 
I didn't think they worked very much at all on that shoulder and arm, which, you know, you don't always have to work on a limb, but considering that this whole storyline and the reason Colt getting a shot that he kind of doesn't deserve is because he's got this heat, this, you know, really big grudge against a guy who injured his shoulder. The fact that played so little into it, but I did feel like Colt took this match really like it, it felt to me like for both these guys, but especially from Colt, I thought Colt was the better of the two in this match. Like that uh, he was taking this seriously. Like this was one of the biggest matches of his career so far. And apart from one spot where he does push-ups while in a submission, he cut out all of his comedy. He attacks Aries right at the bell. Like he's pissed off at him. He, um, and even just like the, the moves he was doing and the pace he was cutting and stuff like this was, this was Colt trying to have like a ring of honor main event level, like action match. And I felt like the effort level from both these guys was very good. And I, and I agree with Matt that like it, overall, maybe it was a little slower. And I feel like even though a lot of times my biggest criticism with Indies and ring of honor even is too many near falls and like doing the overkill and back and forth, back and forth forever. I felt like on this show and this match, it actually probably could have used like another two or three minutes of just near falls before the injury and the finish. Like, I feel like that probably would have, um, this is the match that could have used that could have used them just kind of going nuts in that way because it was, it was a little, not super restrained, but like there are a lot of ring of honor main events where the guys go bigger than this and they, they just do more, have more crazy moves, more near falls. And these guys, you know, even though they're trying to kind of break into that next level of stardom on the Indies, they didn't go, they didn't do literally everything they could, but I really appreciate the effort level. Um, Aries, yeah, like you said, Matt, he's more of a heel than I remember. And, uh, even just his selling and stuff, like he does some, like, more card, and I don't think it's bad, but, like, he does some more cartoonish, like, googly eye, like, selling. Like, he's willing to really sell big for his opponent in almost comical ways occasionally, like, bordering on it, where he's really, will kind of get flustered and, and, I didn't realize he was such a, like, a, a giving and kind of over the top heel in that respect. I agree that that spinning kind of crucifix drop got the biggest reaction along with that small package. Those were clear highlights of the, of the match to me. Um, one uh, Nalty on the commentary kept acting like Colt Cabana is still a heel. Like whenever Aries was doing something kind of heelish, Nolte would always be like, Colt's capable of winning that game too. And all this stuff. It's like, he hasn't been a party <laughs> sneezing. Uh, so bless you. That was a, Thank you. And so that was a little weird, but, um, uh, the one, okay. My one last note on this was another thing that made it harder to take the injury angle seriously is, um, so yeah, after they do the brain buster on the ramp, which sets up the finish, like you said, Aries is in the ring, just waiting, like kind of taking it seriously. The refs and Gabe come out and check on him for a long time. Colt is crawling afterwards to the ring on his hands and knees. And I guess some people in the crowd have these little confetti guns or confetti poppers where like it shoots like a concentrated blast of confetti in the air. And as Colt is like crawling in what is supposed to be like a serious neck injury to the ring, someone shoots a confetti gun right on Colt's back and his back just gets a bunch of confetti on it. And he just keeps crawling. He, he knows sells it. But I, I just started laughing at how absurd this was like this, the difference between like you got a guy that's just selling like, Oh, and possibly maybe had a real neck injury and then someone shoots a, a confetti gun on him. And it was so ridiculous. And, um, 
so finally we get to Dave Meltzer's review, and this is the match he had the most to talk about here. Um, let, let's go through it. Uh, he Dave Meltzer wrote, main event was Austin Aries versus Colt Cabana for the Ring of Honor title. Aries has a lot of problems as champion. First, even though this is a small man's company, he's awfully small to be a champion. Joe isn't oh, look, I'm, all, I'm already I'm already annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Joe isn't tall and his physique is a detriment, but he's a very believable badass who can wrestle. Aries is a good wrestler in a company filled with good wrestlers. Cabana is entertaining, but these guys were going to have a problem, have problems following the previous two matches. The effort was awesome, but I never could convince myself this is a world title match, which was something Joe and his long reign b- brought to the belt. There was cool stuff, including Aries' great dropkick and Cabana doing an acai moonsault. The big move was a brainbuster on the middle ramp, which Cabana sold like death and the announcers put over like it was in the 70s it's a weird because in most promotions this would have been a big spot in a match but hardly a finish and they were selling it like a tombstone in mexico in fact they did so well it kind of gave aries an identity as this guy who will go to great lengths to hurt people the jury is still out on him as champ he rolled cabana in the ring and cabana did get a desperation small package near fall that you didn't see coming before aries hit a second brain buster in the ring for the pin i'd go three and three quarter stars because the finish packed a punch matt Rant away. I mean, what is what am I even going to say anymore? You know, like I just, I just hate the the. I hate that he brings the WWE mentality to it because he knows better. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't really, I don't really have so much more to add. I mean, everybody who's listened to the show knows how I feel about that. But yeah, I mean, I, I just don't like the, I don't like the the way that he, he just can't see it for what it is sometimes. He has to make those. He has to think of it on that on that WWE level. I don't get it. And like Aries was short, even by Ring of Honor standards, he was one of the shorter guys on the roster. But I, I do think, yeah, it, it, it's it's looking at things with like a big league quote unquote mindset, where that wasn't going to be much of a detriment to him in Ring of Honor. Like, like and, and, I, and he really feels that way. Like, he feels like, oh, he's not going to feel like a world champion. But, to you know, if he's wrestling a low key or something, the height difference isn't that major. And no one's going to think that he isn't tough if he's, like, throwing stiff forearms and taking low key kicks. Like, yeah. Aries became a big star. Like, you know, like he, you know, and, and it should have been obvious that he had that potential to be that you know maybe he wasn't at that level yet but it certainly wasn't because of his height it was because he was new and still learning how to show personality and stuff and getting better like not not be but i think you know i think i mean we'll see i think he ended up having a pretty good title reign it wasn't like he was the he never was during this era the star of the company he never became that at least not until you know oh nine maybe you know but that doesn't mean that his title reign was unsuccessful. And I think it goes back to what Joe said when he started to review this match where he said, you know, he noted that uh, Aries had an impossible, like, these guys had, like, so many things going against them. And, like, you know, Aries is kind of in this position that it's really tough to follow uh, Joe's title reign. And, and you kind of see an example of that with Dave's comments where the first half of that review is kind of comparing him to Joe's title reign, you know, and that's something he was going to have to face. And how, but how and often he, does a new champion of any kind have their first title defense be something that's so spectacular and like, yeah, exactly. where the entire act is just like down pat and everything is so over that never happened. It didn't happen with Samoa Joe didn't happen with Xavier. You know what I mean? Like it's that like every, like these things take time to build. I, and I, and I'm sure they they knew that going in with Aries, like his first title defense wasn't some big match. It was against another guy who had been considered a mid carder, and you know so they I think they were trying to elevate these guys. And 
obviously there are going to be some growing pains there. And I, th- I think as far as things go, they were pretty minor in terms – I mean, maybe if, if that cabana injury was real, that's major. But if in terms of like things not working as well as Samoa Joe's stuff did, yeah. But I still think it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, that's such a high bar. Joe, do you have any thoughts on this or should we just keep going? No, let's keep going. Okay. Um, I do actually have that note I missed, Matt. I, I thought I didn't have. I do have it about Colt's injury. This is from the Pro Wrestling Torch after, later on. Colt Cabana returned to Ring of Honor for the first time since August 28th and suffered a neck injury. First off, Torch completely got that wrong. He returned at um, All-Star Extravaganza, which was not August, I don't think. So um, All-Star Extravaganza 2, that is. Um so and he suffered a neck injury against Austin Aries when taking a brain buster on the entrance ramp. Cabana's message board stated, quote, Colt Cabana went to the hospital early Sunday morning after feeling chronic neck pains while attempting to sleep Saturday night from a rough match with Ring of Honor champion Austin Aries. The x-rays showed extreme movement in both his C3, C3 vertebrae and a very slight nick in his C4 vertebrae. Doctors have told Cabana to take two to three weeks off. Cabana promises he'll be at PWG at, on January 22nd. It's unsure whether he can wrestle or not. More updates to come soon. So I should have checked. I didn't check to see if he actually did wrestle that show. But that, according to his website, that's what they say. Um, after the match, more people come to the ring, including CM Punk, to help Colt to the back. Colt sells like he's in a tremendous amount of pain. The crowd chants for him as he goes to the back. And finally, it is time for our main event confrontation yes it is a rare main event in ring of honor that is not a match mick foley comes out to a huge reaction like a top five reaction up to this point in ring of honor history not quite a just incredible reaction but a big reaction uh mick says he must be pretty over to give him to to get that kind of response after sitting through three and a half to four hours of the best wrestling he's ever seen he puts over the main event and says he was in the back wondering how he was going to be able to follow that mick says he then he realized he has something in store for samoa joe a gift something he's needed mick does the cheap pop with boston saying you know i'm right here in boston massachusetts but then corrects himself and says i'm here in a suburb of boston uh fully introduces himself fully then introduces joe as the former ring of honor champion gets him to come out a pissed off joe marches to the ring he's staying in the ring with still in his ring gear but with a ring of honor hoodie over top of it uh fully hands him a shirt and says he deserves it joe unfolds it to discover it's a cactus jack t-shirt fully says he has something else to give joe though and it's not a cactus jack hardcore ass kicking the crowd groans that but they're that the gift is a disappointment, but Foley says that the crowd isn't going to walk away disappointed because what he's offering Joe is an opportunity. It's a shot at Triple H for the WWE Championship. That gets a mixed re- reaction from the crowd, say, but more cheers than boos. Joe asks if that's if that's Foley's gift, a shot at Triple H. Foley says, not exactly. He's giving him a shot at a shot at Triple H for the world title. He's prepared to offer him a spot in the Royal Rumble, and that gets a big pop from the crowd. Uh, Mick says all Joe would have to do is take out 29 other superstars, and he's in there with Triple H. Mick says he can make that happen with one phone call, and he pulls out an old cellular flip phone. Um, Mick dials a number and says he has the big guy in Cambridge on speed dial. Joe grabs the phone and looks at it, and then he goes, you called a writer? And yes, indeed, I guess he called Brian Gerwitz. And so Foley says that as far as Joe is concerned, 
a writer is the head man because Mick sat down with Vince McMahon and made him watch a Ring of Honor DVD, made him watch Samoa Joe. Mick says Vince cringed and popped in all the right places and said, oh, my God, Mick, what a hell of a talent. He'd be right at home in the WWE. That that gets a lot of booze. Uh, Mick says Mick says that Vince said that Joe would have to tone down his style a bit. That gets more booze. Mick says that when Vince saw the Ole Ole, he went no way, no way. I guess this is the early start of No Way Jose. Do you think Triple H would take a boot to the face like that, he said? Mick says, we've got a guy in WWE who hurts people. His name is RVD. Mick says, we saw his push go right down the toilet because he couldn't do it Vince's way. Mick says, Vince told him he'd be into Joe as long as he toned down his style and that they could cover that fat son of a bitch up. Now, once Joe hears that, he starts itching for a fight, but Mick tells him not to get mad. Vince said it, not him. Mick says Vince also told him if he wanted to see a pair of droopy boobs, he'd hire a 50-year-old woman. Joe then pulls off his hoodie to get ready to fight. Mick says they talked about renaming Joe, something like Wild Animal Joe, Raw Fish Eating Joe, or hell, since Rikishi is gone, they could put Joe in a thong and have him start to do this, the stink face. Joe snatches the mic away from Mick at this point and like kind of bullies Mick into a corner. He leans in to say he's worked here for two years. And if Mick thinks for one second he can insult him, he better be ready to fight Joe unless he has something good to say. Mick grabs the mic back and says he's been in the ring with a lot of superstars and Joe's breath is the mintiest. Which I thought that was pretty great. Uh, Mick says, God forbid we make someone laugh at a Ring of Honor show after four hours of seeing bodies splattered on concrete. Mick says he's being serious now and asks Joe what his goals are. Becoming Joe, Ring of Honor champion again? Mick gives a sarcastic Woo at that. Mick's intensity picks up and he says he's given Joe credit where it's due. He's told everyone he thinks Joe is as good as anyone in the A-League. He saw him and Punk tear down the house for an hour, something Mick himself has never done. Mick says though Mick says though Joe can do it. No, he miss Mick asks asks though can joe do it when he's out of his element it's one thing to be a big fish in a very small pond it's another to be a big fish in the biggest pond of all mick isn't talking about six or seven hundred fans he's talking about millions of eyes around the globe mick isn't talking about a couple handheld home video cameras he's talking about multi-million dollar equipment he's talking about raws live tv not coming out on some little dvd that starts drawing some booze Mick is talking about standing up to the backstage politics, the BS, the backstabbing, and giving your best anyway for millions of fans, not entertaining fans whose idea of a good night out is a squirt of baby oil and a Jenna Jameson DVD. That actually gets a pop. The crowd appreciates being talked to that way. Uh, Mick asks Joe, what's it going to be? Wrestling Austin Aries again or getting a chance to take on a WWE superstar? He hands the mic to Joe, who says that Mick is absolutely correct. He absolutely wants to take on a WWE star, but what Joe, Mick, what Mick fails to understand is he wants to do it now in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts, mocking Joe's cheap pop delivery. That star is Mick. Joe says, unless Mick has a carpal tunnel from signing those cute little books of his, he needs to either rumble up or shut up. We get a fuck em up, fully fuck em up chant, so they're not on Joe's side at this point. Mick says, Ring of Honor is a crowd that appreciates honesty, right? He asks if they want the truth. Can they handle the truth? Mick says the truth is, despite what Ricky Steamboat or Ric Flair might say about his lack of talent, he's one of the biggest stars to ever step foot in a wrestling ring. The truth is, he decides where, when, and who to wrestle, and when he does, Vince McMahon writes him a six-figure check to do it. Mick asks Joe, if he was Mick, would he wrestle here in front of these people at the Cambridge National Guard Armory or this Fleet Center, or Raw in front of millions, or on a little DVD for Ring of Honor? 
Mick says, the truth is, unless someone in the back wins the lottery and decides to shuffle that money Mick's way, this proposed Joe versus Foley match isn't going to happen. Mick then takes the mic and he drives it right into Joe's head without any warning, knocking him off his feet. Mick starts throwing punches and more mic shots. He rams Joe's head into the turnbuckle. Joe flips him around, hits some punches and ends the to Joe. I mean, Foley. Foley bails to the outside, but Joe gives chase and asks for a goddamn chair from the audience. This gives Mick time, though, to find one of his own, and he hits Joe right in the head with it. We get a Foley chant. Mick hits him with the chair a couple more times. Mick says, here's some sports entertainment, and throws Joe right into a barricade. We get a Joe chant that is quickly drowned out by a much louder Foley one. They go back into the ring. Foley hits Joe with a double-arm DDT to a lot of applause. He says, bang, bang, gets another face reaction as, the, as his music hits, and he starts walking to the back before he makes another call on his cell phone. Uh, long segment, so I have thoughts, but I just talked a long time. So, Matt, it's only fair. How about you tell me, what did you think about this? A lot happened in that segment there. I thought it was really good. I um, I thought that Foley gave a really good promo. I um. It really made me want to see Foley and Joe. You know, he, he, I like the ride that he took everything on. I like that he, you know, he was a heel, but he wasn't. I, 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 the only thing that I would criticize is I wish Joe got to do more. You know, like he was sort of like, he was listening and, and not really, um, you know, he, he would make little comments like when he, when he says Brian Gowers and Joe's like, you called the writer, you know, stuff like that. But, I thought Foley gave a fantastic performance here. Um, I, um, you know, the 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 fight that they had wasn't much. You know, it was very quick. It was over very quickly, and obviously there was that big mystery of the uh, who gave Foley the the chair and stuff like that. Um, but I, I thought that it really set up like a lot of stuff that you'd want to see and you never got to see. So that's the uh, that's the downside. But I thought if you're going to end the show with like a big main event promo, which obviously ROH never does, um, you know, starting and ending a show with a promo, like that's novel. But this was a good one to use. They, this was this was good. This was good stuff. Um, you know, made it seem like the big focus of a lot of the year was going to be Foley and Joe and for various reasons it was not. So Joe um, I want your thoughts on this, but also since you were there live and coming, going to the show at the time, like, did this give you what you expect? Like, when you hear advertised like a, a confrontation versus Samoa Joe and Mick Foley, like, were you expecting? Like, did you expect to see more than this or less than this, or did you have like no expectations at all? And what did you think about this? I was surprised I got kind of physical at all, given the the, the state of Foley and you know. In fact, it's a Ring of Honor is a small company and all that, so it exceeded that. But I just remember seeing, you know, Mick Foley do his thing, and as he said, he's one of the big stars in the history of the business who gives these kind of promos in front of millions of TV viewers and you know huge arenas in this little armory. It was just astonishing to see live. It was such a great performance there. It's tough because the fans will gladly view WWF as an antagonist, but. Foley himself is so beloved to pretty much any kind of wrestling fan. If you were an old school ECW fan or, you know, or you were a big fan during the Attitude Era, which maybe a lot of people were that went to the show just to see Foley, you know, it's tough to boo him. But I think he did it. You know, he did a fantastic job. And I, I like the confrontation. The the mystery angle of the chair didn't really pay off in a, in a big way. It was just Austin Aries, if, if memory serves. But yeah, it was. Whatever. Yeah. So but what it was is, you know, kind of a. Bummer to end the show with Samoa Joe getting beaten up, but uh, 
But no, uh, I mean, really fantastic segment overall. Yeah, just to make clear, I didn't quite make it clear, I think, in my recap, but like when J- Mick gets uh, the chair, I guess it's from someone behind the curtain. So they tried to make this a storyline of, you know, who handed Joe, I mean, Mick the chair to attack Joe with. And of course, it was just Aries to set up the Aries Joe rematch. So yeah, like Joe said, it was kind of a disappointing, like Black Scorpion style reveal where the reveal is the obvious person. But um, I. I had mixed feelings on this promo. I, I, I really, I thought Mick gave a really good promo, but and I think Mick on his game is maybe the greatest promo guy in wrestling history. And one of the things that makes Mick great is he tries to uh, put, he's talked about this, tries to find like a germ of reality, something he really believes to kind of build the promo on. It's almost like promos as method acting where you try and make your character or your promo as much like the real you as possible. So you don't actually have to act that much. I feel like the problem here is, Mick was so honest in some parts other than I assume, I, I I am pretty sure that Vince McMahon never watched a Ring of Honor DVD with McFoley. But other than that, like Mick came off very honest and in some ways it kind of muddled who was the face and the heel because like Mick did get some booze for certain key lines and he did, you know, um but but overall he got more far more cheers than than booze and at the end of the segment where they're fighting Mick is the one everyone's cheering for, and maybe that's because a lot of those fans were fans that came just to see Mick Foley. But Joe did get the biggest pop on the show earlier the night before Mick. So, like, there were a lot of Ring of Honor fans there, and they were clearly choosing Mick over Joe even after that promo. And it was almost like, who's the heel here in the sense where I guess Mick is supposed to be the heel because he's kind of slagging Ring of Honor, but everything he's saying about Ring of Honor isn't false. Like, it's like, you're right, Mick. I can't blame you when you've got limited matches left for wrestling for six figures and not wanting to waste one of your remaining matches in an armory in front of 700 people for a few thousand dollars. Like, it's hard for me to be get angry. At, and, and kind of what I, I think I feel like it boiled down to is, in my opinion, Mick cut a promo that would have gotten him insane heel heat in 1995 ECW because ECW that was a very much an us versus the world mentality. And if you left for anywhere else, it was a fuck you, you sold out thing. And so when Mick's talking about, you know, like, uh, you know, Hey, I don't want to wrestle just for a DVD. I don't want to wrestle in front of a few hundred people, you know, all this stuff. Those are the kind of lines that though, I think he would have been showered with booze in like 94, 95 ECW, but in ring of honor, I think the fans don't quite have all of that us versus them brutality. You know, they're not always chanting when someone leaves you sold out or fuck you or anything like that. And I think, you know, they booed at some of the lines where he's like tempting Joe, but some of the lines where he's like, Hey, I could get you in the Royal rumble. That got a big pop. People were like, yeah, that'd be awesome. If you could get Joe in the Royal rumble. And I think again, I don't know if he was expecting it different. It was kind of like he was doing those promos. He did in mid nineties ECW where he was trying to get Tommy dreamer to sign with WCW as his salvation. Like, you know, you put on the suspenders, Tommy, and I'll get a word in with uncle Eric and get you signed. And those made him a huge heel in ECW. But, those kind of promos, which I think he cut here, weren't going to work in 2005 Ring of Honor. But okay, can I but, just uh, can I? Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. I know if you, I want to no, hear your no, butt you, first. I, I was just going to say, but I think the, still the promo fully gave. He had great delivery. I love how he kind of shifted from pure babyface to he kind of takes that turn. I like how he kind of ramped up the intensity of it too. I thought the brawl actually looked fairly good, although we didn't get much of it. And I thought the content was really interesting and good, but I just feel like, like a lot of ring of honor storylines, I feel like I'm supposed to think Foley is heel, but he says enough things that are true 
where it's like I can't really hate him. And uh, and I do feel like one thing – this is my last point. I'll let you respond, Matt. Um, Ring of Honor, so often with these, these legends, we talked about on a recent show, I think after All-Star Extravaganza 2, Ring of Honor does a really go- good job with legends when they bring them in. Uh, they feature them enough to feel like they're giving them really good respect, but they don't let them overwhelm the show to the point where it feels like – the rest of the guys are, are like way lower than the legend. It's almost like the legends endorsing ring of honor and, and that the, you know, these are the new future legends. And this was one of the rare times when like Mick, you know, like you said, Joe didn't get much to say on the mic and it fully cuts this negative prone. That's kind of shitting on ring of honor in some respects. And he's beating up the hometown hero and Joe and the crowds totally on fully side. It's one of the rare times where it did kind of feel it, it, where I did feel like it made Ring of Honor feel a little indie in the negative sense where it felt like, you know, here's the big hometown hero and the crowd instantly just abandons him for Mick Foley. And it did feel a little bit like it made the rest of the company seem a little bit lesser, I felt like. Not obviously in a way that hurt the company in any significant way, but I rarely feel that way with these legend segments and I felt that way with this one. Uh but Matt, you were going to respond to me. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't really agree with any of your criticisms of this of the angle, which I think is usually rare because obviously I think that you usually have lots of great points. And I'm sure you do have great points now, but I don't agree with most of them in the sense of this. I don't think Foley's supposed to be a heel because he wants Joe to go to WWE. I don't think that the anticipated reaction was that the crowd wouldn't want that. Joe himself even sounds excited or looks excited when Joe men- – when, when – um, when Foley mentioned you could be in the Royal Rumble. You know, like, Joe is excited. I think the thing that makes him heelish is when he's saying, oh, you're not actually, like, ready. You know, you got to be different. you got to change. You're going to be, you know, wild animal Joe or whatever, you know. You know, and, like, talking about we got a guy in WWE who hurts people. Like, that that's the thing that's heelish, that you're, like, that you can't do it the way you are. You have to change. And that's when Joe takes the umbrage. Does that does that make sense? Like I yeah, I, I don't but, think I don't think that they want the crowd to be like, oh, Foley sucks. He's taking Joe away. Like or 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 thinking that he's trying to get Joe to quote sell out or anything like that. I think Foley is is like he's being smarmy by saying you have to change and and you know and and that's and then obviously being is having someone sneak him a uh, a chair and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sure what even Ring of Honor's intention on, on whether Foley was supposed to be a healer or not. But, like, the things that would – one thing you didn't mention, like, things that would kind of push me in that direction is, like, that line he makes where, like, you know, he wants to wrestle in front of fans whose idea of a good Friday night isn't, you know, baby oil and a porn DVD. Like, you don't think that's a, a supposed to be – I mean, that got a big pop, but well, that, isn't that, that kind is, of basically – Yes. Yeah, that's a heel line. That, that, that's saying these fans are losers and yeah. I want to wrestle in front of yeah. WWE fans. Yeah, I'm not saying that, that Foley is not being – heelish I, I think what, what i'm saying is that the thing that's making him a heel is not that he wants joe to go go to wwe i think yeah. that's 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 what i'm saying i don't think that's supposed to be something you're supposed to root against uh, i think it's more that foley is trying to like demean demean joe and say oh you would be good enough except blah 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 yeah and, and to your point there there have been um shows we've talked about where when Foley did promos where he would mention wanting to put in a good word for uh, Punk and Joe, the crowd cheers. They didn't boo. Like the crowd clearly is not completely against the idea of those guys going to WWE. I think they're like, like you were saying, I think they're against the idea of those guys going to WWE and getting mishandled, but I don't think they're the kind of fans that are like, if Joe leaves, we're just going to say, sell out, sell out, fuck you. Like, yeah. 
But um, a couple notes on this. So one from Dave Meltzer. Meltzer wrote, the highlight of the show to me was still the Foley-Joe confrontation, and this was 95% due to Foley. This angle was so good on so many levels, with the Foley attempt at a heel turn, Dave writes in brackets, it didn't take, but didn't make the segment any less memorable, that it will almost surely be one of the best segments in wrestling of the year. Between the subtle turn and Foley's ability to make everything he did make sense, and also how he gave credibility to everything he said. So... Dave loved this segment. Thought in January, thought it was going to be one of the best wrestling segments of the year. I don't know if I'll go that far. I thought it was enjoyable, but um, and then Matt, this is the thing I alluded to last time, where we were wondering on the final battle show, like there was differing reports, and we were wondering, like, did Joe? I mean, Foley ever really think he was going to have a match in Ring of Honor with Joe, and did he change his mind or what? This might give some information. I'm not sure. This is also from the Between the Ropes interview I talked about earlier that he did around this time. And this happened. He did this interview after this segment. Uh, Foley said that after doing his angle with Samoa Joe in Ring of Honor with one minute of wrestling, he could barely walk the next day. And he's not in good shape right now and hasn't trained much since Backlash. So, like, I don't know if maybe even if, if he was ever thinking maybe he could wrestle with Joe, like, I bet you this could have changed his mind. You know, if he, if he says he really couldn't walk the next day, I think somewhere else he said he couldn't get out of bed hardly the next day after doing, and like, as you will attest to Foley and Joe didn't do much here. You know, I think Joe, I mean, Foley took a couple punches and took a bump off of Enziguri. Like, yeah, there was, it was, it was really no, there was very, very little physical interaction at all. Yeah, and so Foley saying I could barely walk, you know, if that's true. I guess just from um, dropping to his knees when he hit the punches. Like, that's the only thing that I could think of that would have caused that. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely something. It was interesting to find that. But, um, so, a couple of segments left on the show. Next, we go to Colt Cabana backstage with a towel pressed on his neck and shoulder. Colt says Aries took out his shoulder last time they were in Boston, and this time he took out Colt's neck. And he's doing it outside of the ring with weapons, chairs, stages. Colt says, let's do it in the ring, at the kickoff of the third anniversary of Ring of Honor. He knows there's going to be a steel cage on that night, and he's not going to let Aries leave that ring. He double-dog dares Aries to face him in the cage. Aries is going to have to do it on the inside. Colt says he will dominate Aries in the ring and become the new ring of honor world heavyweight champion i thought this was a good promo i, I there was a couple of moments where you know colt was giving a serious promo. i thought there was a couple of little intonations where it felt a little overdone but overall i thought he was good at this i thought the content of the promo was the real start because if you think about what this promo had to do colt just lost clean to austin aries and they're going to have an immediate rematch on the next show in a cage and you're thinking well, what justification where Colt, you could argue, didn't really deserve the first title match to get a rematch? And I felt Colt, by framing this match as the idea of the last two times we wrestled each other, both times you had to injure me on the outside. And what's going to happen if we have a match where you literally can't leave the ring? Like, I felt like at the very least, he at least gave you a reason to be interested in another match between the two. And so I thought, you know, it did a good job. I thought this promo did a good job of accomplishing, like, that goal. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would agree with that pretty much completely. Joe, do you have any thoughts on this or? Nope. Good, good promo to end the show. Like you said, it justified a, a a tough match to justify. I thought it did a good job in that respect. 
And finally, we end with one last little segment. We cut to Mick Foley elsewhere backstage talking to someone on his cell phone. Mick is saying stuff like, it wasn't that bad. He hits hard, but it was easier than I thought. Mick says he was right there with a chair. All he had to do was ask. Mick asks the person if they'll come to the Rexplex in Jersey saying, let's see how Joe does against a real WWE superstar. And that's how we end the DVD with this mystery tease, which, well, I guess we'll get into that on the next episode, what that becomes and what it was supposed to be. Um, so overall thoughts on the show. First, I'll go to, I guess, a couple guys we've been quoting throughout the night. Dave Meltzer wrote that he, this show was highly recommended in his opinion, or it's highly recommended from him. Sean Radican, Sean Radican wrote different. He wrote, I made the trip to, up to Cambridge last weekend to see Ring of Honor's first show of 2005 and came away disappointed to some extent. There were a few good matches, but unlike other, the other Ring of Honor events I attended, there weren't, there wasn't an excellent match. The second half of the show saved the event from me a total disappointment and the Samoa Joe McFoley in-ring confrontation was great. This was easily the worst Ring of Honor event I have seen live. The quality of most of the matches on this card was fair at best. So, Joe, you're the guest. Um, where do you fall on the spectrum? Because it does seem like there were some divergent opinions here. I thought it was a good show. I thought it's certainly the last four segments, the last three matches in the interview finale certainly made the show. But there was a lot of good wrestling here. And I give them a little credit because there were a lot of, of injuries. And if you imagine if Jack Evans could compete and he was in that, the the ultimate endurance or whatever they call it the uh ultimate the tag, you got yeah the the tag title match you know then you could have taken out the roddy segment against the the students and i think the show would have been even better but you know given what they had to work with you know it's certainly not a perfect show there is some some junk but the junk is pretty quick and inoffensive so you know there are certainly better shows to see with better matches but i thought this was a good show uh matt what'd you think um i I thought it was a good show too. I, you know, obviously I dislike the tag match more than most of you, but um, the other stuff, like, there's really nothing else that I was really that bothered by. And I, you know, I liked the opener. I think more than both of you, or at least felt more satisfied by it. Um, I appreciated, you know, that they tried this. That the show had a different feel. You know, it's a new year; they were going for some new stuff, new rest, new champion. You know, new way to start the show, new way to end the show. I thought all the storyline stuff worked pretty well. Um, you know, maybe I, maybe I even liked it better than, than you two. So, I, you know, yeah, it definitely did not have a great match, but it had a bunch of pretty darn good ones. And the direction is something that I think is appealing. So I think, you know, Radican said this was, um, you know, one of the worst shows he'd been to. And obviously I can't speak to the live experience, but I think this is better than most of the Boston shows from 2003 and four. It wasn't as good as the weekend of thunder, but I think it was better than Scramble Cage Melee and better than Round Robin Challenge 3. Um, and I just think, I think it had a good vibe. It felt like things were going places, and I, and I like that. Yeah, um, I thought this was a good show. I, I will say it does feel like right now a company in transition. You know, it, 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 Final Battle felt in a lot of ways like the end of an era with Joe's title loss and stuff. And on this show, it feels like there's a lot of like moving up the chess pieces to get it for the next big series of shows and storylines. Like a lot of this, a lot of the show was just about building up matches for the next show. Like they announced the scramble cage match. They set up the rematch for Aries Cabana in the cage. You know, they set up the Roderick strong, Steve Carino match. Like they were doing a lot of stuff, even just to set up 
and even the Poldy stuff is building up to the next show. Like they, they, they were building a lot to the next show, a lot of just kind of housekeeping and getting things in order, starting new stuff. And, um, and, uh, or oh, go on. I was going to say, sometimes, like, sometimes that feel that's good. Like when, like when a show feels like it's in transition, like, Sometimes, like, the feeling of transition is actually, like, refreshing. Like, you're like, oh, they're, they're trying stuff. They're changing stuff. And, and, I, and I like that. I like that vibe a little bit. Um, so I, I think that actually in some ways helped the show because not that things were stale in late 2004, but it's not like Final Battle 04 had, like, a really, like, exciting vibe up and down the card. You know, it had a few really good things. Yeah. But we mentioned that wasn't a great show top to bottom. And I think this was an improvement over that. And if you look at the last five, the previous five shows, it was Joe versus Punk 2, the Jushin Liger Weekend of Thunder double shot, All-Star Extravaganza 2 with Heenan versus Cornette and uh, Joe Punk 3, and then Final Battle with uh, Joe losing the title. So, like, you had to have a come down in terms of importance sooner or later. Like, you can't have that, – that, that might be the five the, – the, the five-show stretch that's, like, the most consequential of at least the gay bear of Ring of Honor. Like, no five shows back-to-back like that are that big in that sense. So the idea that like, yeah, in terms of feeling like important and huge, no show was going to, there was eventually going to be like a little bit of a step back, but I agree that there, there was no great match. If you consider a great match, like four stars or better, which is, I do like, I wouldn't say there was a great match, but I would put, you know, at least three matches at three and a half stars to three and three quarter stars. And also I didn't like the, um, spanky Shelly match as much as you, but I would put that at least three, three and a quarter stars. So that's four matches above three stars on a show. Like maybe we've gotten spoiled these days, but when I was growing up, you got four matches that good. That was a good wrestling show. And, uh, plus, the, the main event segment was fun. So, yeah, good show. You know, not the best ever, but an interesting time for Ring of Honor. You know, a show that maybe isn't remembered that much, but it was fun to revisit it with you guys. And that brings us to the end of the show. So, first off, Joe, you're the guest. What do you have, folks? I know you got so many podcasts and stuff, and I understand rumor has it there's a new episode of the Five Star Match Game coming out soon. Yes, depending when you listen to this, the planned release date is October 28th. We have a new episode with... Halloween Havoc Trivia, or Halloween Havoc, if you're uh, Rob Naylor, who is a contestant on the show, along with Joe Sposto and Mikey Falcone, who are all on the ECW episode we did way back when. When I first heard, whenever, when I first saw that name written, I definitely, when I was like a little kid, I was like, Havoc. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. And uh, in November, we're going to do the Survivor Series Trivia Show, which will probably feature um, Matt and Trevor. So there you go. Cannot get enough of us. I'm going to win. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Mario Kart boys. Wow. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, of course Joe Sposto, friend of the show, uh, Joe Gagney, friend of me of the show, and we've been on Five Star Match Game, so everyone should check that out, obviously. And Joe recently mentioned this was 15 years in the old wrestling podcast business. Joe is uh, one of the sage, one of the Mount Everest of wrestling podcast guys. So it's always great to have Joe on the show. And, and everybody, and everybody who listens. Give Joe a big thank you for us for staying on with us for three and a half hours tonight. Um, on a Saturday bet- night. Between technical difficulties, some delays, Joe is a, Joe is a mensch. Yeah, absolutely. I can say that and because I'm Jewish. <laughs> I can't say it because I'm not Jewish. That's right. Never say so, it. 
<laughs> no, sir. But what I can tell you is if you want to contact us, it's through the years at gmail.com. T-H-R-O-H is how you spell through. We have a, a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs forum. We have our own podcast feed now, but we are still also on the Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed, so you can get the show on either. There might always be a little bit of a delay because on our own podcast feed, we put up the episode as soon as possible. Pro Wrestling Only is when they schedule it to not step on any toes. Remember, we got the show. Shimmer Herstory podcast is going to be coming in the first week of November, a special episode to be featured there. But if you want to listen to that show, it is also every episode is on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Uh, Twitter, at Trevor Dame on Twitter and at Mayor MGF. I have a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Mecca Mecca, spelled M-E-C-C-A-M-E-C-C-A. That's it. Next time on the show, we will cover the third anniversary celebration, part one, New Jersey. It's going to be Punk and, I mean, Joe and Foley confronting each other again with some mysterious surprises. We got a scramble cage. We got Aries and Colt in the cage. We got, I think, uh, CM Punk is spanky i think he's wrestling on that yep, show we got yep. there, there's a lot of stuff on that show it's a long show actually so yeah another one another mad. long show from from us expect that one next time <laughs> oh boy okay until next time have a good time have a great time vote if you feel like it